we did a bad one. Oh, friends, hello and welcome to the Defining Marriage podcast. We have some confessions to make. Confessions from a dance floor. We did a real bad one. We uh, have recorded a episode for you about many of the things that have happened over the last few days. And sadly, we had a bit of a, a microphone whoopsie. A hissy daisy. <laughs> Please stop. No, no, no. Stop. Okay. No. Uh, yes. So uh, there is a bit of a, a muffly, staticky, fuffy noise in the background of this episode. Hopefully it will not be too troubling for you. I have noise reduced it to the point where in many parts it is imperceptible, but at other parts it may sound a bit like uh, there is a record that has reached its conclusion and is crackling in the background. And we have also become daft punk robots to some extent. It's a little bit, uh, I mean, you'll, you'll notice we sound weird. This is all to say we sound weird. Yes, and also that I am harder and stronger. You are certainly hard. Um, also, friends, just to let you know, this is a long one, and it's because there's been a change in marriage, which it's been a long time since we've had a change in the status uh, or potential status of marriage. And I just want to say, like, what you're about to hear is a very off-the-cuff conversation between Matthew and I, the kind we, we have around the house, but it's not... Uh, these, these, there's a lot of thoughts and feelings and half-baked ideas and processing and just wanted to let you know that so that you can kind of receive it in that spirit if you would be so kind. Yes, indeed. So these are not official defining marriage policies. What you are about to hear is the sound of us reasoning and rationalizing and exploring our thought clouds. The sound of two cheeks clapping. But we're going to make it up to you. How are we going to do that? You guys, I have a present for you. So for the next week, starting on November 14th and going for the entire week until Friday, you can get the ebook of Defining Marriage for free on for Amazon. Free? Free. Well, that's a bargain at any price. It, it is, and the price is zero. It is a, a zero price sum game. Mm. A zero sum price. As the that's saying goes. Some pig. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so you can get the book for free on amazon just go to amazon and search for defining marriage uh it the the free book promotion is set to start on the 14th so uh if it has not started it will be starting soon when you go to the the book page it may not be at the witching hour it may not be right at the stroke of midnight but if it so if you don't see it right away you can check again it should be free to have a, a kindle book a free kindle book a, for your face a free ebook and e a free book uh, and and don't worry it, it be, as james points out uh midnight may not be the exact start time but it's always after midnight somewhere in the world that's true so you can go get defining marriage read all about the stories that we've talked about and of course friends you can always listen even after this week to my audiobook for free by going back to the very first episode the first 18 episodes of the defining marriage podcast feature me reading the audiobook uh, one chapter at a time, one week at a time, with some insightful commentary afterwards. Well, some insightful commentary and some of me just deriding marriage, which made a lot of your reviewers uh, change their review from <laughs> like five stars to one star. You did produce some dismay. I did. I did. That's not what people wanted in the victory glow of marriage. That's what I want, though. <laughs> I, I wouldn't stick around if I didn't love dismay. <laughs> anyway, so friends, uh, thank you once again for listening to this nonsense gibberish. Thank you for accompanying us on this strange journey. Thank you for all the nice things you've said and for reminding us that uh, even in our darkest hours, uh, none of us are alone and we can all reach out to each other and chat and talk and make it through these hard times together. Uh, thank you for your patience with the strange audio quality that you are about to hear. It's a little crackly at times, a little Skypey at times, but hopefully it will not be too troubling for you because it is the sound of us doing therapy on each other, which is a fun thing that couples can do uh, and is maybe inadvisable, but that's the way it goes. 
Anyway, and please do get a copy of Defining Marriage, the ebook. And if you like it, of course, leave a review on Amazon. I think that's it for now, James. How, about, how, how are you feeling? You've been massaging your neck very strangely while I talk. Perhaps, listeners, you can hear this. We're, we're using a very clear microphone right now, so you can hear James touching himself. I have been producing a bolus in my craw. Oh. I'm going to regurgitate it into your mouth later because that is part of our mating dance. And then this week, uh, I will catch a Pokemon. That reminds me of two things. One, I'm hungry. And two, uh, Pokemon Sun and Moon comes out this week, doesn't it? It does. It oh does. Don't, don't let it take your eye off the prize. Don't let Pikachu distract you from Monster Men. But uh, enjoy. Enjoy the Pokemon. Just as you said, Monster Men, our upstairs neighbors bellowed at each other. So perhaps that is where the wild things are. That is Machamp. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, let's go make some dinner. Mm-hmm. Friends, welcome to the Defining Marriage podcast, where we talk about what's going on with marriage equality. My goodness, are we going to have some things to say over the coming days and weeks and months and years? And we also talk about what's happening in our lives to cheer ourselves up, because there are things that happen in our lives that are good, too. Hi. Hi, James, my beloved partner. (laughs) What a way to start. Now, let me tell you this, Herman. I have some good news, and I have some bad news. Uh, I only want good news. The good news is that you raised over $1,300 for Seattle Children's Hospital. I did. I'm very proud. And I could not have done it without the support of listeners because I didn't spend a dime. No, that's not true. I didn't spend some money, uh, but not very much. Uh, everybody else spent, uh, they, they opened their wallets and they opened their generosity and they opened their hearts. And their pants. And uh, fly and went down. part of my Extra Life fundraiser where we play video games for 24 hours straight and uh, people watch and donate money to the hospital and all together, everybody, my gosh, we raised almost $1,300. It was $1,286, I think. Ah, what a what an obtuse number. It was strange. Well, somebody donated uh, $2016 oh, dollars or something like that. Yes. And that started that opened the floodgates for weird amounts. Sure. Well, why not? Any amount is a good yeah. amount. Anyway, so uh, my gosh, you guys, that was so awesome. We also had another live stream this past weekend that went really nicely. We had, uh, this was for our project Playing With Pride, where we interviewed queer gamers all over the country, and they told us stories about how games helped them come out and uh, reconcile with family and found their tribe. And uh, so we live-streamed sort of an early access sneak peek at uh, the documentary project that we're putting together. And uh, you can watch that right now. Listeners, you can you can go check out that live stream because it's been recorded, and we're going to keep it up online for one week. So it'll be up until next Saturday, the 19th. Uh, you can go to playingwithpride.com to watch that. And please, if you do watch it, give us your feedback because we want to know what you think and what's working and what you like and what you don't uh, and how you would like to see this project move forward because it's very much a rough draft right now. And uh, we've gotten some really, really useful feedback from people about it. The first hour of that program is the actual presentation. Then after that, there's maybe another 45 minutes or so of nonsense talk. Uh, oh, so if no. you like this, this, yes. this show... Uh, there's about an hour, it's almost like a bonus episode of Defining Marriage, of us talking shit about video games, largely. I very nearly had one of my moments, because I was trying to remember part of your world, Yeah, I couldn't remember the title, and you very easily could have been like, what's the name? I was real tempted, but there were a bunch of people in the chat who were like specifically there for video game talk, and unlike this show, I respected that. You respect you respect the viewers. You respect the audience on on that live stream. Well, Nikes, they literally could have broken out like pitchforks and torches and come to get me live. Whereas here, they can break out their pitchforks and their torches, and then they can just uh, bail hay by moonlight. Oh, that sounds romantic. Don't set the hay on fire. Okay. Hey. <laughs>
Uh, and now the bad news. I need a haircut. Uh, you look very nice right now. Listeners, you can't see, but James James's hair does some very interesting things these days. It is <laughs> it is it is beautiful. I like I really <laughs> like how your hair looks. It is. I I mean, I don't know if it's just Seattle's humidity or my aging and my my hair becoming brittle. Um, but it has changed, hasn't it? It looks really good. Like it looks styled. Not yep. fully styled. It here's certainly what, isn't. Here's what your hair looks like right mm-hmm. now. Yes. It looks like someone did a really good job styling your hair, and then it was a little windy. It looks like I slept on it, because in fact I did. Well, we have good news and bad news with marriage equality as well. Oh, tell me it all. <laughs> that was an interesting sentence. Uh, so uh, there are... Uh, let's let's get through the bad news quickly mm-hmm. uh, and, and talk about it, try to understand this world we live in. 14% of mm-hmm. LGBTs voted for Donald Trump. Why'd they do it? Why did they do it? I am mystified by this. And it, it, part of it, like, I shouldn't be because I hear from them. They, what do they tell you? Th- there's people who are, like, commenting on my YouTube videos and on Facebook. And they're saying things like, uh, you know, there's this persistent thing about, oh, Hillary was bribed by the Saudis who want to behead LGBTs. Mm-hmm. Oh, you cannot possibly believe. Like, what? What? She was bribed by the Saudis to behead LGBTs, so now they're going to come to this country and she's going to, like, let them behead LGBTs? Like, well, I think the intimation, I, I could be wrong. I think the intimation is that by these these governments that are anti-LGBT giving very generous gifts to the Clinton Foundation, what they were doing is buying influence with the Clinton family. And that Hillary, as a statesperson in the role of Secretary of State and perhaps in the role of President, would then give them preferential treatment because of the gifts that she was given. Now, it is not a crazy thing to think that there is a conflict of interest uh, to have the Secretary of State, who deals with our relations with foreign countries, mm-hmm. that if she, if her foundation is given a very generous gift, that that may be that foreign entity buying influence and that that may influence her decisions now we we don't have any evidence that that is the case but it's not an insane thing to think in fact we have evidence that the opposite is the case because the secretary of state she tied foreign aid to a country's record on lgbt civil rights mm-hmm. she took that money and the, she didn't take she in fact she did not take the money but the money that went to the clinton foundation was used to improve the lives of people around the world with hiv we have evidence that if these countries were trying to uh, gain influence, uh, she's going to stand up to them and try to improve their record on LGBT rights. So, for goodness sake, in contrast, the other choice in this election uh, has... Uh, Donald Trump has said virtually nothing about LGBTs, uh, and everyone else in the administration has, you know... Uh, Mike Pence said something... Uh, homosexuals as a group are not able-bodied because of the high rates of disease that they carry. <laughs> Uh, he also defended countries that criminalize homosexuality. Sure. He tried to uh, stop the State Department from encouraging countries to decriminalize homosexuality. He tried to maintain criminal- criminalization of homosexuality around the world. So, and, and he wasn't even getting millions of dollars to a foundation. Sure. Well, I mean, didn't he also want to criminalize simply asking for a marriage license? Well, yeah, I know I've seen that going around. So, what are the deal? What's the deal with that? Um, let me. 
So I have seen uh, on the social medias, and I am skeptical of the social medias, but I am also lazy, so I don't look things up, that Mike Pence wanted to uh, make it illegal for same-sex couples to apply for licenses and that they could potentially be sent to jail for doing that. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. That's just a thing that I've seen. So, like everything, it's complicated, but Mm -hmm. essentially... What's going on there is sort of a dog whistle to homophobes. Mm -hmm. So the law that he proposed would have made it a crime to solemnize a marriage between people who are not legally allowed to marry in Indiana. So you'd be charged with a misdemeanor. You could be charged with the misdemeanor if, for example, you're a member of the clergy Mm -hmm. and you presided over a marriage between two men. Now, this law was not specific to gays. It never said this law only applies to gay marriages. Well, okay, but how many other kinds of marriages were going on that were between people who can't get married? That's what what I mean by it's a dog whistle. So the law never said. It's it's a pretty good one. I mean, that's like a police whistle. That's like a rape horn. That is not a dog whistle. So you could be cute and say, oh, Oh, no, but this also applies to clergy who solemnize marriages between dogs and cats, between dogs and cats or between siblings or between okay. what, you know, whatever people oh, who sure. aren't allowed to marry. But I, I mean, don't know that anyone's going to swallow that, though. I mean, even people who are in favor of it, like th- there is no rash of brother sister marriage that needs to be stopped. Let's hope not. So. Well. But there's yeah. So it's, it's obvious who there's one group that this was meant to target. And mm-hmm. even though they're not called out by name, it's very similar to. Well, but this has been the tactic for a while, yeah. right? Is that you because if you call out uh, LGBT people specifically in a law, then you're open to being challenged on discrimination. Exactly. So what you do is you, you have to make it apply to everyone because mm-hmm. then it's not discriminatory. So you just have to single out situations that could apply apply to everyone but in reality only really apply to lgbt people yeah and honestly in practice that doesn't even work because that allows you to pass a law mm-hmm. and then someone has to it gives you enough wiggle room that you can pass it and you can have a couple years maybe where that law has been passed and a challenge is working its way through the courts and then eventually the challenge gets to a high enough court and that court says look you may not have singled them out uh, by name but in practice this is the effect that the law has so it, it's doing the same thing so it's unconstitutional Sure, but raising those barriers means that, for one thing, you are going to have a period of time where people are disenfranchised in some way. You're putting a real burden on the resources of the people who want to oppose it. And by putting up those roadblocks over and over and over again, you can really put a a drain on the opposition. Right, and it's just, it's very cute behavior by by these people, you know, in, in the same way that, you know, people like to talk about how Mike Pence uh, is in favor of conversion therapy. Uh-huh. And he was very cute about that, too, sure. where he was like, oh, this money should be spent on uh, therapy for people seeking to change their sexual behavior. Mm-hmm. And again, that is it's such a dog whistle, but it's such a loud dog whistle. There's, I mean, I'll give you one guess as to what he meant by that. The guy who said homosexuals are not able bodied because of the rates of disease that they carry. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, it's also going back to an old trope that, you know, I mean, just gay equals AIDS. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, let us let us not forget that straight people are big sluts, too. Yeah. One of the things that I found kind of remarkable, but I guess it makes total sense, is that people are more willing to trust someone who says, I'm going to get you than someone who they feel like they can't figure out what they're really up to mm-hmm. um that's that sort of the suggestion of corruption in the absence of evidence it, it, it just it can fuel 
any number of conspiracy theories. Whereas yeah. someone just saying, I am going to pass laws to make presiding over same-sex marriages a misdemeanor, um, I guess you know where he stands. Whereas somehow Hillary's lack of wrongdoing raises suspicion that she did wrong. Yeah. Also, I mean, to be clear, there was a conflict of interest with the Clinton Foundation. And when it was brought to light, the response was basically like, oh, sorry, we forgot to tell you about this conflict of interest. It doesn't look great. Now, my guess is that that is more just the kind of incompetence that also was part and parcel of the whole email situation. Mm -hmm. But it's very easy to read bad intent into it if you want to. Sure. Now, getting back to these 14% of LGBTs who voted for the Clintons, what do we do about that? I mean, mm, voted like, for the Trump. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, voted for the Trump. Uh, so we've got these members of the gay community that are seeking to under. I mean, they're not seeking. They're not even set out to be like, I want to undermine the gay community. But that's the effect that they're having. Well, here's what I suppose is going on there is that I think a lot of people in the LGBT community after the ruling on same sex marriage felt like we were done, felt like, you know, there are no more LGBT issues you know, it's full equality. Uh, you know, we've got glee on television. We've got a movie for looking that no one's going to see. Uh, we've, we've got it all, baby. Our problems are solved. And so now it's time to focus on getting my taxes cut. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, it, and the truth is, is that there's a lot of work left to do and a lot of it for people who are a bit more marginalized than wealthy people who have a lot of privilege so you know there's stuff like protecting people's jobs and the housing of people who are living in public housing right now there's an obama executive order that makes it uh that that says that you can't kick someone out of public housing because they're queer and that is probably going to be one of the things that the republicans roll back so uh you know if you are making uh five hundred thousand dollars a year you're probably not too concerned about uh non-discrimination public housing uh, but uh, people who don't have access to the resources that you do uh, probably are awfully concerned about that. I mean, do we have a breakdown of among that 14% uh, what that looked like? That is a great question. I have no idea. I mean, I have some theories, but, uh, yes. uh, you know, I, I don't want to say anything without actually having the data. Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know if anyone has looked at that, but uh, I sure would like to see someone try in the meantime, you know, what it makes me think of is that we have here in, in this sort of chosen family of the gay community, uh, we have people who have, you know, supported people who want to marginalize us. Uh, and it reminds me of the tactic that a lot of queer people have had to take with biological family that are opposed to equality, where you say, look, you're an important part of my life, family member, and I would like to have you in my life. But if this is how you're going to treat me, that can't happen. And, uh, you know, it's essentially a, a self-protective quarantine that you put around your homophobic relatives, letting them know why you are backing away from them and that you hope someday they can come around and support you. What, what the conditions are of you coming back to spend Thanksgiving with them. And I feel like that might be something that LGBTs need to do with our, our chosen family who are kind of the the foxes in the hen house the people who are who are you know what 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 is the place for someone in the gay community who uh is undermining the gay community i don't know that those people can can really have a place if they are doing harm yes i understand that and i and i also understand the the self defense uh strategy of if 
you know, if you come from a family or a place that is unwilling to accept you, that you change the terms of of the relationship such that if uh, if they want to have you in their life, uh, they're going to have to come around at, at least to some extent uh, and, and change their behavior. But I also wonder to what extent shunning and isolation and exclusion helps uh, just in general, in a, in a much more macro sense, mm. um, that if people who, who disagree uh, isolate and self-sort to the point where they have no interaction uh, until, and basically make the conditions such that there will be no interaction until you come around to be like me, um, if that isn't going to be a losing proposition nationally in a country that, uh, for a lot of reasons, going back to its founding, has given disproportionate power to smaller rural communities mm. than to dense populated cities. That's true. There is a balkanization that, that happens there. And uh, I think... Yes, there there is a danger, but we're not talking about you know we disagree about this municipal bond measure, uh, and we're not talking about like I'm I'm just gonna you you know I'm, I'm just gonna disappear and I'm not gonna talk to you. What I'm what I'm thinking of here are well, you're I mean what it sounded like you were saying is that these people need to be excluded from the LGBT community if they're not going to vote right. Now I, I'm, I I realize that's an oversimplification, but I'm making that oversimplification because I think that would be the counter argument to what you're saying is that you're basically saying um, we're not going to tolerate you as part of the community unless you think right. Yes, that is what it sounds like. But I mean, what are you supposed to do if someone is? I, I mean, I, that's the that's the nut of the problem, isn't it? What are you supposed to do? Right. Like, let's say you know that you have someone who is a part of a community that they're literally trying to, not trying to, but that, that they have literally taken steps that would harm that community. Well, but I think maybe you just got to it there. They're not necessarily, and, and maybe some are, but they're not necessarily trying to harm the community. They're trying to do something else. And what is that something else? Like, mm. you know, I mean... They t cut their taxes, some some form of xenophobia. Uh, they're trying to do they're, whatever it is that Republicans are trying to do, and is harming the community just an unintended consequence that they are refusing to acknowledge, or that they acknowledge and don't care about? I mean, perhaps, but I, I think I do, and you know, I don't know what the answer is. But it sounds like what you're saying is that even if it was an unintended consequence, because they made this choice, they are no longer welcome, and that. We shouldn't expend any effort trying to understand them. We should exclude them and make the conditions of their inclusion that they come around and, and change their point of view. Now, I think it's important to listen and I think it's important to understand. Okay. And my hope is that there will be a place for them in the gay community or the queer community or whatever. That having been said, like if you, for example... yes were to you know there there are things on which we disagree and i think that's lovely and yeah. uh if i think it's cute when couples disagree and they are aware of each other's differences and haha you like this music and i like that music mm -hmm. um 
if you if, if a romantic partner was taking action or it doesn't even you know it doesn't even have to be a romantic partner a friend an acquaintance even a coworker when they express that they are on the side of people who want of a party that's that said that has ex-gay therapy in its platform and that has said that they want to undo marriage equality and all that stuff what they're saying i mean surely they must be aware of this someone who's supporting the republican party must be aware of this and what they're saying is yeah i, I you know i support them i know i know they they don't think that you're that you deserve equality or that they want to rob you of your rights and uh that's that's okay that that's that's not a that's not a deal breaker for me but doesn't this kind of compartmentalization and cognitive dissonance go on in all communities i suppose so yeah there are plenty of things about which lots of people disagree but does this not like fall beneath the bare minimum threshold well i mean i can say like like you know growing up catholic mm. i mean i know plenty of Catholics who use birth control have premarital sex, uh, you know, many, many things that the church condemns and still consider themselves good and faithful Catholics. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I think y- y- you go down the line of any group that someone identifies with and you'll find these examples of, of cognitive dissonance and compartmentalization. And so, I mean, I guess what I'm getting at with that is just that, I mean, is it not possible that really... That like really, yeah, they don't think about it. Like they don't, they they really don't think about. I mean, particularly if they're not part of a marginalized group, mm. that it they're not. They like legitimately don't think about it. And I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm not saying that's an acceptable thing, but that they're not motivated necessarily. Some certainly are. I mean, we are seeing hate groups endorse Trump. I mean, unambiguously. So certainly some are motivated by bare animus mm. but is it not possible that some in fact maybe many are motivated by other things and have simply compartmentalized so that they just don't think about mm. these effects sure i suppose that is definitely possible probably likely um so you've got for example let's say uh there's that couple who was at a trump rally a couple weeks ago there's a gay couple and they i think were in the coal industry and they were like we're really concerned about jobs and yeah it's that's what it sounds like what you were describing that compartmentalization we're really concerned about jobs and uh we don't want to think about the gay marriage and non-discrimination hospital visitation and foreign regimes and all that stuff then and, and i just want to be clear i'm not saying that that's okay what i'm saying though is that that is a phenomenon that happens and if you write somebody off for compartmentalizing Mm -hmm. i think we all have to be written off in certain situations because we all do it we all overlook Mm -hmm. things we don't want to see Mm -hmm. i I mean it it, it, it's just a, a thing the human brain does to live in a world that's fucked is that it we overlook the things we don't want to see and it's not good it's not okay it needs to be addressed but i think to write off a person completely because they're doing that is basically to write them off for just a thing that's fundamental to being human it's mm-hmm. not a good thing it's 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 the monkey brain lizard brain rat brain reacting in ways to protect itself that are not are are better angels of our nature sure and you know i'm thinking 
I was not thinking so much of people like like that couple at the at the Trump rally. And I was thinking of people like um, I've forgotten his name, the guy who worked for it was George Bush's campaign manager. What was his name? Ken. It's Ken Melman. Ken Melman. Ken yeah. Melman. That sounds like a fake name. It, and Catherine yeah. Lehman, who is you know a, another person who's in my book. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are people who know everything about politics and have made a decision. And yeah, I guess they they are compartmentalized. It's harder for me to forgive those people. Well, yeah. I mean, I think there's a difference between somebody who doesn't have a lot of power, who is making decisions uh, while ignoring some some very obvious uh, side effects Mm -hmm. of that decision versus somebody who is sort of willfully compartmentalizing. I think when, when you're at a certain level, you have to yes willfully compartmentalize i mean and and again maybe not maybe you are just so invested in the victory of your party that you i mean we see this with uh what's it called um that school in pennsylvania that had the football hero man oh uh, the paterno man who was who was diddling the boys and everything right they you know despite all the evidence of sexual abuse Mm -hmm. still want him to be this hero Mm -hmm. i mean you want to talk about the way humans do this thing um, at the Catholic church yet again, unbelievable abuse and crime. And still, you know, people are like, well, you know, it's my church and I love it. And Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's the body of Christ at work in the world. Well, the body of Christ is in a lot of little boys right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe pull Christ out of them Mm -hmm. uh, for a few minutes. But like, I mean, this is just a thing humans do. And, um, And again, it's a bad thing. I'm I'm not trying to excuse it or justify it. Um, but I also think that when we, when we say they must have known, they must have been, th- they, somewhere in their mind, they knew they were hurting marginalized people. I- I'm not sure that that was dialed up beyond a little bit of background noise. Not to excuse it, not to say it's okay, but I think to write off a person completely for doing a thing we all do is probably unwise just in in any case like regardless of the current climate um it's just not a good thing to do so maybe the right approach here is if you have say a peter thiel in your life uh or a ken melman that that is that is a case of someone in power who is making a, a willful choice and uh maybe maybe that's someone that you don't need to invite to your dinner party but in all well, other cases well or maybe you do, and you talk about how these unintended consequences yeah. have a direct and serious impact on your life. And that's that's what I was what I was coming up to is just make it clear that a condition of being in your life is hearing from you that what they've done is has hurt you. I, I think that is totally cool. Like if somebody wants to conduct their life that way uh i mean more power to them to determine who they have in it and who they don't want to have in it based on sort of the harm and even just the 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 stress of knowing that you're sitting in a room with someone who would be willing to do you harm like i totally get like if you want to exclude that person from your life Mm -hmm. go for it but on the other hand i think if you can Mm -hmm. put up with people like that and you can talk to them about the effect it's having on you yes. in an ongoing dialogue that doesn't involve an ultimatum. Mm-hmm. Cause I think again, there's this human thing when you're confronted with an ultimatum, you go into a conflict mode. And I think once you're in conflict mode, reason doesn't work. 
you're you're operating on a different level of your brain that wants to defend your position because your position is part of your identity. And when you feel like your identity is under attack, part of your brain kicks in and wants to defend it. Mm -hmm. And when you're in that sort of variation of fight or flight, I don't think the rational processes and the empathetic processes are really engaged. Um, I mean, from the the marriage equality struggle, uh, did they not find in research that the thing that connected with people was those empathetic moments of sharing, you know, tell me about your marriage. Well, Mm -hmm. here, and then once someone shares a story about their marriage, it's like, well, here's what marriage means to me and why my marriage matters. And it's those connections that ultimately have a transformative effect, not necessarily giving someone an ultimatum that if you don't agree that I should be married, I will have nothing to do with you until you agree. Sure. And so we're talking about a slightly different situation here, but maybe it's a distinction without difference. We're talking about members of the community who, I don't know if the word should is correct here, but who should know better. We're talking about members of of a community who are, who, who see the consequences of, of their actions and who live with people who are negatively affected by the consequences of their actions. Do they? Do you think the Peter Thiels of the world are living with marginalized queer people who are directly impacted? Perhaps not. And so what you were saying earlier is dialogue and conversation. Uh, I think that is the, the, the thing that this has, that has to be a part of this is letting them know that what they have done has this negative impact. So let's say Peter Thiel probably does not know that much about what it's like to live in, be queer and living in public housing. Sure. And I I mean, I'm using Peter Thiel as sort of an extreme example, but you know, if there are, he's never been a trans person of color in public housing. I think we can, we can safely say that that is not an experience Peter Thiel has had. Not yet. Uh, But let's say, you know, you're, I don't know, at a gay bar and someone's talking about the Republican party and how they support them and how they're probably better and how they, whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think there's gotta be some sort of, I don't know. I I, I don't think that I, you know, I'm I'm thinking about like smile and get along or just laugh and, and say, Oh, well we all have our differences. Well, no, 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 no. I'm not saying that either. And again, I don't know what the solution here is, but you know what it, what it just makes me think of how, if you can do this, if you're fortunate enough to be able to go to your family's Thanksgiving and when someone says something homophobic, let them know that really hurts me. Uh, yes. Yes. Same thing. Like with our chosen family, when someone says I voted for Donald Trump, let him know that really hurts me. Yeah. And I think share the stories of, of why and how and frame it as I statements as much as possible. I mean, and again, I get that this is hard and I am an imperfect messenger because I don't want to talk to people I like, let alone people I don't like and mm-hmm. people who have ideas I don't like. Um, it's really, really hard. And you know, going to some like uh, shit you'd hear on a corporate retreat, like use I statements. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, when you engage those defense mechanisms, the higher parts of your brain, they shut off. And you uh, not only are you not receptive to a different point of view, you actually entrench in your own because you have to protect it. And so those conflicts can actually deepen divides. So I came into this thinking in terms of like the self-protection that queer people have to do with homophobic aunts and uncles. And I, and I want to be clear, protect yourself. Do not let other people harm you. Do not let yourself fall into patterns of self-harm. If, if you need to cut yourself off to be safe, I mean, do that. 
do that. But what's effective if you are lucky enough to be able to do this without without it endangering you, what's effective is letting them know and it, not rolling over and being like, well, we all have our differences. Because well, yeah, I think I mean, that's gross. Um, mm-hmm. But saying, but, you know, speaking up and not giving up, not being like, well, you you have your part and I have my part and reasonable people can disagree. Uh, being like, you know, maintaining your outrage, maintaining your voice and saying, for now, for I mean, they haven't done anything. They're not in power for another like couple of couple of weeks, right? So for now, all you can say is like uh, one of the heads of the domestic policy for the transition has said that um, what's his name? His name is Ken Blackwell. He's just put in in charge of uh, domestic policy. Says he said recently, homosexuality is a lifestyle. It's a choice, and it's a lifestyle that can be changed. What is it about that that is that is harmful? Uh, there's uh, there's a lot of stuff in a very small amount of space. Okay. Homosexuality is a lifestyle; it's a choice, and it's a choice that can be changed. Implies, I mean, for one thing, it just explicitly says that it's a choice, and it is not. And uh, he says, "Well, let's break that out." Mm-hmm. What do you mean when you say it's not a choice? Nobody chooses their sexual their attraction. Correct. Now, now, I, the, now that is a point I think you would find of agreement. With people who say that uh, the gay lifestyle is a choice and that it can be changed. I think you would find agreement there that you do not choose who you are attracted to. Sure. And what is it implying is that it should be changed. Correct. That uh, you, you choose if you're going to act on that attraction or not. And that it can and for the sake of the community or in some cases for the sake of uh, some sort of spiritual reason... Mm-hmm. It ought to be changed. And now what he's also saying is homosexuality is a life a choice. It's a lifestyle. He's not saying heterosexuality is a choice. It's a lifestyle. And it's one that can be changed. So what he's saying there is that heterosexuality is the default. We're all heterosexuals. And some people have chosen not to be. Okay. And now why is that statement harmful? Because, uh, you know, I, I think you're correct about all that. But what is it about that that actually does harm to people? And it's not just a difference of opinion. Well, uh, there's a couple things. One, for people who are gay, it, it, it puts on them this huge this weight of guilt of like, did I do something? I must have made, like, if you believe that, if you hear someone say that, you think, how, why have I done this? And how do I fix it? Uh, and it also gives permission to people who, who don't understand, who think it's true, to, to people who identify as heterosexual, to say, oh, it's okay to discriminate and it's okay to uh, withhold rights and to think less of these people because they've done something wrong right and and what effect does that message have on on perhaps young people who are uncertain of of what their attraction means not a good one it leads them down a real dark path of if i'm still doing all this if i'm having these homosexual thoughts and if i'm still behaving in this way i'm just not i I, i'm doing something wrong I've, i've i'm guilty of having made a choice that i I'm hearing is the wrong choice. It's an unethical choice rather than it's something, honestly, I think homosexuality is something really great that, uh, you know, you should really enjoy uh, rather than feel guilty. You've done something wrong. Sure. Cause I think there's two sort of mimetic oversimplifications that you hear. One is, uh, you know, gay is a choice mm-hmm. and the other is born this way. Yes. And they're both, I think, kind of misunderstanding and, and oversimplifying to the point of being meaningless uh, mm-hmm. what they're trying to say. So gay is a choice 
my understanding is that the argument there is that you don't choose who you are attracted to. Maybe it's something, maybe your mother did something wrong and that broke your brain. Or maybe, maybe even something biologically has gone wrong. There's been some switch that was flipped the wrong way. And you are not attracted to the correct gender. Now, honestly, there's there's a spectrum of homophobia there because there are people who are like, well, some people are saddled with these these attractions, and we just need to teach them how to deal with I, it. I understand. And there are other people who are like, no, you can get rid of unwanted same sex attraction. Uh, yes. So then the next step is you don't choose your attraction, but you choose what you're going to do with it, and that like pedophilia or like alcoholism. These are compulsions that you have. You have this desire for this thing that is disordered and harmful. And it's within your power to choose whether or not you're going to act on it. And Mm -hmm. if you are choosing to act on it, then you are choosing to be gay. Mm -hmm. And that is what the choice to be gay means. And their position is that there is another choice, which is to resist that attraction and either live a celibate life or try to find some way to live a more functional heterosexual life. Sure. Snap a rubber band on your wrist every time you think about attractive men, or just marry a woman and hope for the best, uh, or, or like you say, be celibate. Mm-hmm. And these are practices that we've seen have an incredibly negative impact on people's lives. Uh, this is implicated on people committing terrible acts of self-harm, uh, it, it it just makes people dissatisfied and causes people to have secret shameful relationships. Uh, it is a extremely unsuccessful way of uh, expecting someone to live, and one that has zero scientific basis in any sort of medical fact. Sure. Now, everything you just said, I think, is not captured in, in born, born this way, this way. Mm-hmm. because I think born this way is a, is a very weird counter argument to gay as a choice because i think gay as a choice makes it sound like you chose to be attracted to someone of the same sex and you didn't but that's also not what they mean when they say gay is a choice uh and likewise what i think born this way fails to capture is that you don't have control over your attractions that is that is true you are attracted to what you're attracted to the heart wants what the heart wants but you do make choices throughout your life. Um, you make many, many choices about what you're going to do with that attraction. And I feel like that doesn't really come up. It's just, uh, you know, I feel like I'm attracted to men, so therefore I must have sex with men. I mean, you don't have to. Sure. Right now I'm in a relationship with a man who uh, helps me find video games that I think are fun and who has a beard that I think is sexy. And I was not born that way. I was not born uh, attracted to beards. Uh, I was not born uh, seeking a relationship with uh, someone who does not do the dishes. <laughs> but so there are but, I mean, aspects of a relationship that, that I do think are inherent to me. One is that I am attracted to men. And the other is that uh, I am attracted to men who are intelligent and self-possessed. Uh, there are, And those are not things that I can change. Th- but but you are choosing to be in a relationship in and you're relationship, choosing yeah. it to be in the form of relationship that we currently have. At least I hope so. I don't think you're doing it under duress. Maybe you no, are. No. So this might seem like a, a, a huge digression. But the reason I bring it up is because I think th- th- this spectrum of you choose to be a to born this way. To me, just illustrates a big misunderstanding 
and, and it represents a kind of misunderstanding that I think we see a lot of, which is that we're talking past each other rather than recognizing that I think both sides of that position agree you don't choose who you're attracted to. One side would argue that acting on that attraction is disordered and dysfunctional and does harm and the way alcoholism does harm or pedophilia does harm because it has a victim. Uh, and the other side would argue that choosing to act on that attraction, in fact, not only does not do harm, but does a lot of good, that repression does harm, and that when people who are attracted to the same sex are able to express that attraction with people of the same sex, it it improves their lives, and there's no victim, there's no one harmed by that. Yeah. So I think we can start with that point of agreement and then, and then move on to a more nuanced disagreement. Mm -hmm. And there, I think we can start looking at, like, if you're saying that a non-heterosexual relationship or non-heterosexual sex is harmful, I mean, is that true? That's something we can kind of examine. Um, now, some people are resistant to facts, you know, and, and they also may come at it from a religious position that is intractable. As marriage equality has become more accepted around the world, I think we've seen that people can soften on that position that non-heterosexual sex is harmful. Yeah. So essentially what we're saying is not um, everyone shut up and go to your separate sides, but talk about keep, you know, essentially like the, the, what I consider the worst case scenario is this couple that was profiled in Washington blade a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. There's this headline. He's for Trump. He's for Clinton. They talked about this on, um, I'm throwing shade mm -hmm. and, that there's this couple with this disagreement going on that like I, who knows what their life is like what, yeah. what what happens in in their home what i imagine and maybe this isn't the case but the thing that i th that sounds terrible to me is that they have this fundamental difference of values and they're both very politically active so obviously this is a big part of their life but they have this fundamental difference that they're not talking about and who knows maybe they are talking about it. maybe they talk about it a lot but what sounds like the worst case scenario to me is not talking about it and not letting someone know there's a conflict here particularly because there's a conflict here where people are getting hurt well so my take on that particular couple um and i could be totally wrong because i'm you know who knows i'm not a fly on their wall yeah is that these are people who are not affected by the positions that they're taking. E e neither one of them mm -hmm. are affected by. They're both insulated from any kind of harm by the amount of money they have and where they live and that sort of thing. So to them, it's very American Idol. It's very Team Sanjaya, yeah. Team Kelly, and that sort of the the gamesmanship of it and the and, and the. It's that thing of like how and maybe this isn't true but there's that rumor about how trump and clinton both said to each other well whatever happens it's been a real interesting debate and this is this has been real fun and I, may, maybe that happened maybe it didn't but that it's it's all about the the game of politics and it's easy to feel that way when you have a lot of privilege and you don't have to worry about am i going to be able to visit you in the hospital well sure and i think that that's a thing that we saw throughout this election that if you are not directly affected by these issues it's very easy to boil it down to a game, to a reality show competition where it's, you know, do you prefer uh, Alaska or yeah. Laquifa? Um, I actually don't watch Drag Race, so I don't know. I mean, I think this whole episode has been kind of groping, uh, which is probably not a th thing to bring up in this particular election. Yeah. Uh, but, but 
I, I mean, we're groping with what's happened and what to do in a way that I think is messy and disorganized, but I, I think that's where we are right now. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I think the moment right now, and it really was crystallized for me last night, um, Kate McKinnon's uh, opening to Saturday Night Live, which may seem like a real facile thing to bring up in, in the light of everything that's happened. But it, it, I mean, that that is a song that I think is contradictory and seeking and hopeful, but also hurt. And it's, it's, it's got this sort of melancholy, but it's also optimistic. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, it's, it's very human in that it, it's a song that's at odds with itself and everyone's going to be wrong about a lot of things for a while. Um, and the question is sort of like, just what's the way forward? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Be wounded. Uh, I think is, is one thing that we all have to accept that we're, we're going to be. Uh, and, and actually I would like to unpack that too, because like something that I've been seeing on social media is, uh, you know, people saying like, he Trump hasn't done anything yet. Um, and you're just being a sore loser by protesting and getting angry and feeling hurt. Um, you know, people lose elections, people lose games, suck it up, uh, try again next time. Well, so what would you say to that? Uh, I would say that there has been an injury and that is the knowledge that so many people in this country voted for someone who would do queer people voted for a party that would do queer people harm and that really hurts so i guess and the the counter argument i've seen here which is very confusing to me but i have seen it is well he just said that nothing's actually happened yet so why not wait and see we don't need to wait and see to know what the gop wants to do to lgbt people we have seen what they've done for the entire lifetime of many people who are listening to this podcast, uh, for our entire lifetimes, this party has been the party of harming queer people. And so why is it that you think people are fe- feeling hurt and fearful, um, even though nothing has actually happened yet? And actually, some things have happened, but uh, there have been no policies yet. We've been told. We've been told by the people leading this country, representing us, you don't deserve equality. You're not as good. And is that maybe why some people are saying you don't represent me? Yeah. Uh, Because, I mean, that is the thing, right? Like, the people are saying, not my president. And I've seen people like, oh, yes, he is. That We all have to respect the office. Um, But I think one of the things that's going on is people are saying this doesn't represent my values. This doesn't represent American values. Now, the question here is, did not the same thing happen with Obama? where a whole swath of the country said, he doesn't represent my values, he's not my president. Sure, yeah. And I I don't think that's an unacceptable way to feel. Yeah, I would agree with that. Do you think there are any differences this time? Uh, I feel that with Obama, this was a presidency, this was an administration uh, that sought to emphasize, you are free to live in the way that you wish to live, so long that you do not harm other people. Mm-hmm. And this incoming administration, I feel as though this is an administration that is saying, we have determined how we want you to live. Sure. And it's, I think it's one value that 
that they're putting forward uh, among many, obviously, that, uh, you know, if you are the wrong religion, you are a threat. If mm-hmm. you are the wrong, uh, if you are of the wrong national origin, you are a threat. Um, I mean, a, a bunch of people have been identified as threats. And I do think that's a difference with uh, the Obama administration coming in. Um, I think Obama's message, you know, and I think it's it's certainly debatable how well his presidency reflected his his campaign messages but those messages were all about uh inclusion and more opportunity for everyone mm-hmm. um and healing injuries uh and divisions that had arisen through things like uh the Iraq and Afghan war um and you know obviously you can talk about how you know he went on to continue those wars and so on and so forth but what he campaigned on was a message of hope for everyone um, that was in no way exclusionary. Mm-hmm. And I think this campaign is different in that it was a very exclusionary campaign. Let's get him. Yeah, it wasn't, you know, Obama talked about wanting to improve the lives of certain people in the country whose lives have for quite some time not been great. Um, and I think some people saw that as a threat because it meant that if he was trying to improve those lives, he would be taking away something from them, that it was a zero-sum game, that that Obama's plans to help queer people, people of color, and anyone who's marginalized, uh, to give immigrants uh, a path to citizenship, that this was in some way taking something away from them, and that made them afraid, and that made them angry. Um, and, and I think that, in part, was motivating their reaction against Obama, that he's coming to take something from them to give it to someone else. Um, but I don't, I don't think that was in his message. His message was just, we can improve everyone's lives without taking anything away from everyone, which maybe isn't entirely true because I mean, resources are a finite thing, but it's not the zero sum game. Um, I think Trump on the other hand campaigned, not on a message of let's make everything better for everyone. It was a message of in order to make things better for the real America, we we have to engage in the zero-sum game of physically removing certain people from the country, uh, monitoring other people, and treating groups of people, groups of citizens, as though they are a threat. Like, that's the only way to ensure the prosperity of the true Americans is to crack down on the suspect Americans. Yeah, I guess one way to encapsulate that is that the Democrats never really came for the guns, but the Republicans might come for the gays. Might. Now, I mean, that's another thing to point out, is that... um, that fear that that Obama was coming for the guns was never borne out. Um, And the fear that the Republicans are coming for the gays may not be borne out. However, Obama did not run on a I'm coming for your guns message. Mm -hmm. Trump ran on a I'm coming for the Muslims and I'm coming for the Mexicans message. And his choices of transition team and vice president have a very we're coming for the gays message. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think it would be awfully naive to think, oh, they'll, they'll, we'll be fine. They'll leave us alone. Yeah. I mean, to be clear, nothing has happened yet uh, from a policy side. Um, 
But the flags are so red and so high that it, it seems like it would be foolish to ignore them. And then when I say that nothing's happened on the policy side, there is the other side of an executive election, which is that the president doesn't often doesn't do a whole lot in terms of making policy and making law and that sort of thing. The president sets an agenda. The president sets a tone. The set the president sets a direction for the country. And I think what we're seeing already is that the the tone and the agenda and the direction that he's setting is saying it's okay to flaunt supremacy of of whatever ilk uh, you subscribe to, white supremacy, heterosexual supremacy, um, you know, an anti-Semitism, which is essentially a a form of Protestant Christian supremacy. Um, He's setting the tone that that's okay, in part because of those campaign promises to come for the people who are not those things, Mm -hmm. Um, but also because he's not speaking out against, you know, the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, if the president won't speak out against the Ku Klux Klan, what an emboldening Mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, I know. I know. It tells them we're doing just fine. It tells other people, oh, maybe they're not so bad. Right, right. And, you know, speaking of the fear, you know, the first, after the election, where my mind went to is, you know, people are going to go out and they're going to protest this election. And the protests may meet counter-protests. And those counter-protests may start roughing people up. There may, be, there may be beatings. There may be violence. And then we've got a real question. Is the president going to condemn the violence? Because if he doesn't, then we're going to see more of it. Because that's going to be a clear signal that that violence is condoned in this country. That that's what the country is now. That violence is okay. Um, if that happens then there's going to be a call because there's violence in the streets for more police. People are going to be more afraid. They're going to want law and order. They're going to allow an increase in police presence. And if protests continue and violence continues and the police force escalates and becomes more militaristic, we're going to run into protesters and counter-protesters and police all getting into conflict, which is going to increase the violence, which is going to increase the call for law and order. And someone put a stop to this, uh, you know, the the country's coming apart in the cities. We need somebody to put it back together. And if you throw into that powder keg a mass shooting or a terrorist event or, you know, Archduke fucking Ferdinand, I mean, some world event we have no control over. Putin moves into Latvia or, or something that sets the world off. Um, you know, we start to get to some dark scenarios. And I understand completely that when Obama was elected, a lot of people on the right were saying he's going to put us in concentration camps. He's going to re-educate us. He's going to ban Christianity. He's going to take our guns. Um, You know, he's Hitler. A lot of people called Obama Hitler. And we thought it was ridiculous. We thought it was hilarious. Hitler, I mean, he's, he's, barely left of center Mm -hmm. um and he is a constitutional scholar Mm -hmm. who actually seems to take it seriously so he's not i mean there's nothing to be afraid of with obama and i feel like what we're hearing right now from the right is with this talk of how fascism can really sweep a country and how it can transition from a functioning democracy to things like martial law and 
you know, a democracy in name only, where the all three branches of government are controlled, not just by one party, but by one autocrat who has complete authority over those branches of government. And, and you know, at that point, you are living in a very different form of government. And those flags are there in a way that I don't think was there with Obama. But I think it would be really easy for the right to say, well, we thought Obama was Hitler and nothing happened. And so you are overreacting to Trump. Yep. And uh, it, it's it's different, isn't it? Uh, we, we have already seen, I mean, you're saying that nothing has happened from a policy perspective, and that's true. But we're already seeing the plans being laid out, for example. This is another thing we're going to talk about. And we're, we've, we've gotten <laughs> a little bogged down in uh, the first point uh, on this list. Mm-hmm. But one of the other things I have for us to talk about this week, and maybe we'll save it for next week, is uh, the National Organization for Marriage put out this four-point plan about how they want to roll back marriage equality. Yeah, yeah. What is that plan? It's it's complicated, um, but there's two things that can happen uh, that I'm that I'm worried about. One is they want to support conservative justices on the Supreme Court. That one I'm not as I mean I'm worried, but it's not as likely to roll back marriage equality because it would be really difficult. Uh, it would why, be bad. Why why would it be difficult? Well, he'd have to get. Um, a bunch of conservative people on the Supreme Court. Uh, for one thing, right now, the only vacancy is someone who voted against marriage equality anyway. Right. So if he replaces Scalia with somebody conservative, uh, the split's still the same. Right. Now, I mean, it would be hard to find someone more conservative mm-hmm. than Scalia to replace him with. Uh, not impossible. I mean, you could certainly find someone more crazy. Uh, sure. So, and also the court would have to hear some sort of, I mean, the court can't just like revisit a past ruling. Mm-hmm. And the marriage equality one is really recent. And it's, pretty unheard of that the court would be like, oh, that thing we ruled on uh, five years ago, uh, we're overturning that. Now, sure. that, that can't happen. And it's what happened with Hard- Bowers v. Hardwick, the, mm-hmm. the sodomy thing. I mean, that was almost 20 years apart. But still, that's a very short time in the lifespan of the Supreme Court. Anyway, yeah. so for the Supreme Court to overturn marriage equality, difficult, not impossible. Mm-hmm. Something that I'm a little more concerned about is this novel argument being experimented with in Texas where they're saying, okay, well, we have to give them marriage licenses but we don't have to treat them like they're married. Mm-hmm. So we can essentially say, oh, yeah, you're married, but we're going to give everyone an exemption, and everybody has an exemption. Private businesses, individuals, government offices. If someone says, yeah, you're married, but my religion forbids me from recognizing that, so I'm not going to count you as married. I mean, if that prevails, and if mm-hmm. that does wind up before the U.S. Supreme Court, there's a chance the U.S. Supreme Court could be like, yeah, that's just fine. So, uh, I mean, help me understand that one. Is it that the way the law is written is anyone can deny any marriage? Uh, or is it based on the idea that a marriage is between one man and one woman? Right now, I think they've been kind of clumsy about it. Yeah. What happened is the city of Houston offered partnership, uh, offered benefits to married spouses of city employees. Okay. And some group sued saying, no, you can't do that. And so far, they've been pretty unsuccessful. They're suing in state court, and it's going up to the Texas Supreme Court. Wait, Um, wait, they're suing because people got benefits? Yes. Okay. And what they're saying is uh, they should not have gotten benefits. They should have been granted. Essentially, my understanding of of what Texas is saying, and the Texas Attorney General assigned on to this, and a lot of other state officials, is saying um, no one, no state employee should be forced to be complicit in... Uh, recognizing the legal marriage of a same-sex couple. Now, I think this is pretty clumsy because 
Is, is there an injured party? Is there a, a state employee who is part of this suit? My, I believe what they're saying is like the people of Texas are injured by this. Oh, okay. I mean, it seems like it would be much stronger if there was a state employee who was saying this injured my religious liberty instead of just an abstract. Well, the problem is, is that this is based in Houston, and right. Uh, I think in the in the Parker administration, it's it's been challenging to find any employee who's like, oh, I don't want to treat you as married. Sure, sure, sure. Anyway, so I think this has been a bad case for them to bring, but I mm-hmm. think they could try again. I think they could find another one where they're like. Okay, I'm a city employee. I mean, it would not be hard for them to find a, uh, a Kim Davis. And, right, that's what I was wondering. You know, be like, okay, uh, now now our argument is no state employee should be forced to participate in any way with the legal marriage of a same-sex couple. So, I mean, this is all very speculative, and we'll just have to see what happens. A lot can happen in four years. Sure. Uh, for example, the four years between 1941 and 1945. But... Oh, those years. Um, but so it's a four-point plan, though. So that was point two: is is use that, uh, that idea actually, that you just don't treat people as though they're married. Yeah. So that they have not actually elucidated. Oh, I thought that so, was point two. No, no, no. That that's that's something that I'm keeping an eye on. Oh. Uh, so the, point one is Supreme Court justices. Yeah. Supreme two is rescind all the executive orders, and there's nothing in there about marriage. But uh, they sure. want them to rescind all the executive orders about uh, you can visit your spouse in the hospital, and uh, federal contractors can can't do non discrimination. Point three is NUM wants to uh, undo the thing where federal aid is tied to a country's record in LGBT rights. Sure. And number four is they want to pass the uh, First Amendment Defense Act, which is essentially a nationwide turn away the gays bill. Right. Now, that is something that could be obstructed in Congress, right? Because, because I mean, the whole tactic that was used for the last eight years, which I think it's horrible that we may have to see this again, but I mean... It is possible to obstruct a bill. I, I understand that the filibuster is sort of a, like a gentleman's agreement. It's mm-hmm. not a thing that's actually part of any law or even an official rule. But the threat of filibuster is what's kept anything from happening for the last eight years. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just a matter. It's a question of is this a this one of the things that Democrats are going to push back on? Are they like, this isn't worth it. We need to save our battles for somewhere else. Sure. And I mean, if we're playing a ping pong game of obstruction going back and forth between whoever's in the White House, I mean, then in that case, we are a failed state. Mm-hmm. If we cannot govern ourselves, um, we're just going to because stop. Our, our system is just stopping the party that's that's got the executive branch, then I mean, then, then, then that's it. It's game over. Like, I mean, at some point, this has to change or mm-hmm. i guess just become an autocracy and then everything just goes through congress yeah so um that brings me to the next two points that i had for us to talk about we're going real quick because we spent a lot of time talking about stuff this sure week. sure um so wouldn't it be great if there was an alternative and say we had some sort of two party or more than two party system correct um australia yeah. uh, the plebiscite is for sure dead it's not going to happen okay um bill shorten who's the prime minister uh, says that there are no plans for any other legislation or any other measure to bring about marriage equality. And he says it's a real shame that uh, essentially he did not use these words, but he essentially blamed everyone who was against the plebiscite for stopping marriage equality, essentially saying gay people have no one to blame but themselves for not being able to marry men. Okay, so no plebiscite, but also no bill. Exactly. He okay. said that was the only way that we were going to do it. And because we're not going to do it now, we're just not going to do it. Um. Well, I mean... Obviously, things change, so that's not going to happen in this particular legislative session or body or however it's it's tallied there. But 
I mean, it'll happen eventually, right? Because it's something that the country at large is in favor of. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Uh, Bill Shorten has been disinvited from Pride. Yeah. As, as one can imagine. Although, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, uh, what an opportunity. Like, if he did come to Pride, what an opportunity to confront him with, uh, look what you've done to us, and we're mad at you. Well, so who is, I don't know who Bill Shorten is. Uh, what is his deal? So he's the prime minister. And, oh, okay. Yeah, so... He is in a position of some authority, and uh, I think this if he had gone to Pride, uh, it would have been a great opportunity for people to confront him. And I don't know what that confrontation would even be. But. Well, so, you know, again, this isn't our country. I don't know anything about it. So I don't there's a lot I don't know here. What So what was his position? Uh, I believe he was in favor of marriage equality, but essentially wanted to only do it by plebiscite. Okay, so he wanted to be in favor of it, but he didn't want to be responsible for it. Exactly. Real triumph of leadership. Okay. Well, I guess in that case, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think he knows exactly what he did, and I imagine he knows the effect it's going to have. It seems like it's a a political calculation that I don't understand because from the numbers you've given me, it sounds like he wouldn't be in any sort of political jeopardy for, for, you know, facilitating marriage equality however i mean i also don't know the politics of australia like maybe his constituency is more fickle than that and it is an issue that could divide them i think he might lose the support of the wing of his party that has to represent rural areas sure so maybe his constituency isn't rural but uh, he needs the support of people whose constituencies are and so this is why he's doing it uh meanwhile Mm -hmm. in taiwan uh, they are on track to become the first Asian nation with marriage equality. It's oh, going to happen nice. probably very soon in the next few months. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Taiwan, 80% of the country is in favor of marriage equality. Uh, and I'm reading about why that happened there. Uh, while many other Asian countries are have a lot more progress to make, uh, and one of the things that it's been credited to is Taiwan's strong multi-party system. Sure. And I mean, that's something actually I did want to touch on a bit. I mean, I know this one's running long, but I think this is a pretty big week. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me just roll back for a second to NAM and their four point plan. What is I know people are afraid of marriage equality getting rolled back. What is the likelihood of, of a complete reversal on marriage equality? Virtually none. OK, but we could lose much of what we've gained on marriage. OK, but elaborate. Uh, particularly if this First Amendment Defense Act passes, uh, then we could have a situation where, yeah, we can get married, and that doesn't mean anything. Okay. Now, what is the likelihood of that happening? That is more likely. Uh, It's impossible. I don't know. It's impossible for me to talk about But uh, like you say, there are Democrats in Congress, and they will hopefully obstruct it. But they might not. They might see this as some sort of compromise, like, okay, if we give on this, maybe... Uh, they'll maybe we'll be able to cut a deal on climate change or something else. Well, I mean, it's a chess piece. Climate change is, yeah. I, I mean, there's not going to be any deals on climate change from the sounds of things. Sure, maybe. Okay, we we give on this First Amendment Defense Act, and maybe we'll get something in the budget. That seems like it's perhaps more likely. So, uh, help me understand because it's actually been a while since I've been following this sort of thing. Um, in part because I haven't had to. So uh, my my laziness is perhaps responsible for Trump. Me personally. Um, but uh, who is in charge of the Democrats in the two houses of Congress? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, see, this is a this is a thing. We should know this. We shouldn't have. Uh, I knew 
I knew when like Prop 8 and that sort of thing was happening. Sure, Nancy Pelosi was in there for a while. Uh, I honestly, I don't know. Okay, there's a Schumer, I think, in the in the mix. Sure. There's uh, there's some other people. Uh, there's an Elizabeth Warren. There's a Bernie Sanders. I don't think they're leadership necessarily, but they're in there. Because mm-hmm. um, what I'm just trying to get a sense of is, uh, you know, who are the Democratic representatives and to what extent do they have the stomach for these fights? Uh, there's uh, going to be okay. quite a shakeup uh, over the next few months, too. So whoever's in charge now is probably not going to be in charge uh, in January. Well, is that so? Because, I mean, they're remaining the minority party. So is there going to be a big shakeup or is it going to, I mean, when the majority, when the minority and the majority shifts, there's a big shakeup, but like are, are a lot of committees going to see their like chairs change and that kind of thing uh, or speaker. Uh, I mean, like, yeah, probably, or, probably there. I mean, I think what we're looking at is that a lot of people are going to be like, uh, we really screwed something up here. And so everyone who thought they were in a safe position within the leadership of the party uh, everything's in jeopardy and we're being thrown into chaos right now. So who knows how it's going to shake out in the next few months. Okay. I mean, isn't there, there's like a whip and there's a, there's a chain. There's a, there's a whole bunch of yes. those, like when you're the minority party, you still have a leadership structure. It just doesn't necessarily set the agenda. It sets the agenda for your party. Well, right. But not for what goes on in the house of the Congress. Exactly. Yeah. Or the house and Senate. Uh, okay. So, that was one thing I wanted to clarify. So the likelihood of marriage equality being rolled back, I mean, it, it does sound like a full repeal is highly unlikely, but erosion of the protections of, or erosion of the definition of marriage mm-hmm. uh, is not necessarily out of the question. I'd say it's more likely than unlikely. Okay. Um, Possibly not at a national level, but I think it's more more likely than unlikely to happen in places around the country. Well, I was going to say, I, I think a nationwide RFRA is something that probably would get filibustered or watered down to the point where it's just symbolic language to make people feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, but with so many uh, states where there's a Republican governor and Republicans in both houses uh, have the majority on a state level, I think state RFRAs are a real possibility. And depending on the way the court goes, and I think we can guess which way the court's going to go, uh I think those could be upheld. And I think a lot of people who sort of reluctantly, well, a lot, I mean, there's maybe one person on the court who reluctantly sided with marriage equality might see these RFRAs as a release valve for the the pressure and sort of the discomfort with allowing it to happen. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, I may have voted to, or voted, ruled to allow for marriage equality. However, this assuages my conscience because now I've, I've sort of, undermined it just enough uh that it's not full marriage anymore Mm -hmm. yeah exactly uh i think that's definitely what we could be looking at um so what should people do who are married or want to be married um who are concerned about losing the protections uh that come with that i don't think that there's a whole heck of a lot you can do i don't think you need to go out and get married right away to protect it like in a in a prop eight situation now let me let me ask you though is is that not maybe wise um because the thing that sort of allowed a lot of those state marriage bans to be challenged is injured parties and does not having maybe more injured parties have any benefit maybe is, it doesn't that is a good point uh i think that 
if you are married and you lose your rights, then you will be an injured party. Mm-hmm. And if you wish to marry and suddenly cannot, you're still an injured party. Oh, fair enough. That's true. Yeah. So, I mean, one way or another, you're going to be injured. Uh, it's not that's a very true. Although, thing to say. Although the injury there, I think, is I think being married and then losing your protections mm-hmm. is a sort of a, a more material injury that's than true. the the hypothetical injury of there were protections I wanted but didn't have. Because now you just don't have a thing you already didn't have. Right. So in the Windsor case, she was married in Canada, couldn't get married in the U.S. Right. In the Obergefell decision, he was married in one state, couldn't get married in the state that he lived in. In the Prop 8 case, they wanted to get married but couldn't. And that was the one that had – that was the marriage case before the Supreme Court that had the mildest reaction. Mm-hmm. That was essentially we're not even going to decide. Sure, sure. Uh, now, that is not because they couldn't get married, but, um, you know, it's worth pointing out, I guess. Uh, so I think – the the strongest cases are the ones where someone got married and, and then something happened and their marriage wasn't recognized. And real me this because I, I think something that the executive branch has uh, a lot of control over, and maybe I'm wrong, but is immigration. And okay, so there are two things that are important to note here. One yeah. is Justice Department under Obama, particularly in the last four years, mm-hmm. has been very proactive about uh, defending marriage equality specifically uh-huh. that is not going to happen under whoever is going to be running the the justice department right uh giuliani or god knows who uh so there's that also immigration there is not much probably that can be done to halt the immigration of same-sex married couples okay into the u.s okay uh, now, there is other stuff that can be done to make life unpleasant for LGBTs. Uh, for example, it's probably going to become a lot harder for trans people to get a passport with their with the correct gender. Yeah, no, this is something I saw that uh, is it the trans. There's a fund um, that is helping people with this. But uh, yeah, I, I did see advice um online to trans people that get your passport now get your passport get any documentation with gender identified get that done as soon as possible um and why why is that uh why is that advice being given uh i believe i'm not sure if that's an executive order or I, actually i think it's a policy of the state department and so that policy could change okay so uh that is a thing that 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 needs to happen people need to get their mm-hmm. passports yep yep uh, there are concerns about international adoption uh, in the way that the U.S. and this is not an area that I know a lot about, but apparently mm-hmm. uh, this administration has facilitated international adoption for same-sex couples in a way that is likely to change. Okay. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think if there's any other like top-line things. Oh, oh, uh, if Obamacare goes away, one provision of Obamacare is who knows what components will go away, but that you cannot be denied uh, health coverage because you are LGBT. Uh, that's a provision that might go away. Really? So you could be denied health coverage because of your sexual orientation? Yes. Well, that's quite a big thing. Yes. Uh, huh. Um, uh, under what circumstances might that happen? It is hard for me to imagine, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, you might run into a situation where an insurance company says something like, oh, you're trans. Well, trans people often get really expensive surgeries, so we're not going to cover you. Okay, sure, sure, sure. And uh, or, I mean, or, HIV medication is very yeah. expensive. Ooh, Prep is gay? very expensive. No, we're not going to cover gay people because gay people get Prep. Right, 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 right. Okay. Uh, interesting. What are now? I know that Trump ran on a repeal and replace platform. 
that is something that does have to go through Congress, though, right? That's not an executive branch decision, is it? Yeah, I am pretty confident that that would have to go through Congress. So, I mean, that seems like another one's ripe for a filibuster or some sort of obstruction. Well, let's hope so. Let's see. I mean, hopefully there's not some sort of deal that's advantageous to the Democrats to be like, okay, well, they want to push this thing through. And if we give on this, then they'll push through a weakened repeal of Obamacare. So maybe we'll let them repeal the thing about LGBTs if it means keeping the insurance mandate. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, LGBT people certainly could be sold out uh, in this Congress. Um, yeah, would on not a be the first things. time, particularly trans people, would not be the first time that trans people got sold out by Congress. Yeah, absolutely. But, um, like, what is the likelihood? Because I'm wondering, like, what, what deal could they even offer? Like, deal making just hasn't happened for the last eight years. Mm. Is it suddenly going to start happening? Mm. Um, I mean, I just, I don't, I don't know what they could offer. I, I mean. If the thing is we want to repeal Obamacare, um, but I will make that repeal less bad mm-hmm. if you exclude even just trans people. Mm-hmm. Like, it seems like the whole thing's a non-starter. Like, well, we just don't want you to repeal Obamacare, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, that, what, you, what that you you're throwing us this bone of like, oh, we'll make it less bad if you exclude trans people. Um, it, like, it, it seems like the the premise. Mm-hmm won't fly i don't know maybe and and maybe in that case the republicans can offer something that the democrats want maybe they'll be like okay well you get this immigration thing or who even knows but maybe the republicans will be like we'll allow you guys to pass this bill that you really want if you let us pass this tepid repeal of obamacare well i guess this i mean that that would be shocking but i mean another question i have is just like because this election was not really about policy at all at this point, what do the Democrats even want? Oh, I mean, they've all got I – mean, they want to protect their jobs. They, oh, sure. You know, but uh, yeah, there there are Democratic policies. I but, mean, like, I, 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 like, legitimately don't know what the, like, platform and agenda is. Sure, sure. I because it was that's... all – like, the, the debates were just all about, like, nonsense. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's stuff about um, pushing forward with better climate change controls. Well, that's, that's not going to happen. I know, I know. It's all stuff that's not going to happen. Right. And they have an agenda. They have stuff that they want to pass, want to push through. But, mm-hmm. you know, even on LGBT stuff, for example, uh, they want to push through uh, reforms to <clears throat> the uh, military service records of people who are discharged under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. They want to, to make those better. Sure. Uh, continue funding for the Global Equality Fund. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, some reforms to HIV funding programs. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that. Okay. Um, well, they're not getting that. No, no. I don't think they're they're going to get much of anything. So. Sure, but, but I mean, also, if they're not going to get anything, then why give? And again, I don't think obstructionism is a way to, for a country to govern itself. I think it's a it's the sign of a failed state. Mm-hmm. But um, if they're not going to get anything, why should they give anything? I don't know. Uh, I, yeah, I agree, and it seems like uh, things go a lot better when you have a multi-party system that uh essentially that a system that enables multi-party politics which the unit do you mean two or more than two sorry more than two more than two uh the u.s uh, the the way that we're set up it cannot happen Uh, we cannot have more than two parties the way that that we're governed yeah uh so i think it's just always going to be like this whereas in you know for example in Australia, uh, if you've got a party in charge that can't get anything done, uh, then people can call for a vote. And at any time, representatives can lose their jobs and be replaced by a party that's coming in and 
you know, is saying, we'll do things better, and you can give these new people a shot. Queen Amidala can call for a <laughs> vote of no confidence in Chancellor Valorum's leadership. Exactly. Exactly. Um, we saw how well that went. And I mean, you know, the multi-party system uh, of coalition government, I, I do think is superior um, in a lot of ways. It- it's not perfect. Uh, you know, it gave us Brexit. Mm-hmm. Um, it-, it can lead to gerrymandering of a different kind amongst coalitions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, look what's happening in Australia. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. I mean, I mean, th- there is no perfect form of government. Like, you know, there's a- grass is always greener effect. Uh, you know, I do think that our winner take all voting system um and and the way we are basically set up to make it impossible for more than two parties to exist at a time um i I think that is to our detriment Mm -hmm. but you know just to be clear like um ranked voting and instant runoffs and uh coalition governments they have their own problems you know a la brexit yeah, exactly. So uh, we, uh, oh, as Guy Branham said um, on on Twitter uh, a few days ago, that he was talking about uh, who he's excited to vote for in two years and in four years, and acknowledged that some of those people are not perfect. And he said that he likes to make compromises when it comes to politics because it's hard to decide where to go for lunch with sixty million people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, going back to ranked voting for a second. I mean, I do think that if we had ranked voting in this question in this country then this election would have gone very, very Mm -hmm. differently. Because I do think a lot of people either didn't come out to vote or voted against Hillary. Um, Not necessarily voting in their interests, but just either Hillary failed to excite them so they didn't come out, or something about Hillary, and I think it it could be different for different people, um, they just felt like they couldn't vote for her. Um, and I think there are some legitimate reasons to feel like you can't vote for Hillary, some very legitimate reasons. And I think there's some very illegitimate reasons to Mm -hmm. feel like you can't vote for Hillary, um, in, in my view. Uh, but I think if we had a ranked voting system where instead of it being you, that you pick one, uh, if we had a system where it was, you know, Hillary Trump, Jill Stein, Gary Johnson, you know, the ticket we had, Mm -hmm. uh, in a lot of places, I know there were more candidates in other places and sure, put them on as well. But um, if we had ranked voting, then I think Hillary may not have been many people's first choice, but I think she would have been their second. And she would have been the winner. So something very interesting happened in Maine in this election. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you may be aware of Maine's batshit crazy governor right now, Paula Page. Yeah. Uh, who <laughs> I keep almost calling him Paula Poundstone. Yeah. Uh, so Governor Paula Poundstone would be amazing. Oh my God, oh, incredible! I the iguana is the lieutenant governor. Oh yeah, fantastic. Or what? Does she have an iguana or a bearded lizard? I, <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm too I'm too amused by any of that to respond. No. Anyway, Paula Page is the one who has done any number of crazy things. Uh, he's a fantastic racist. Uh, he is, fantastic. Fan- yes. <laughs> he. Uh, beyond beyond measure is what i mean he is sure. he is a racist in the realm of so as, so as to be almost a fantasy of what racists are okay but he's real uh yep. he's the one who like he called somebody a cocksucker you know all this stuff well i've done that uh the reason that they've got this crazy governor is because maine has always had a real strong three-party three-plus party system sure and sure. something like 30 percent of maine voters voted for paula page but even less voted for everybody else because the votes were split so thick uh, so Maine in this election, mm-hmm. uh, has enacted ranked choice voting. 
Very good. They were I the mean, first state to do so. I, I don't see it sweeping the country, but I, I mean, I really do think that, like, if conscientiously you couldn't go out to the polls and you couldn't get motivated to go out to the polls and vote for Hillary, like, like I said, there are a lot of reasons for that that I get a hundred percent, and there are a lot of reasons for that where I'm like, fuck you, but. Um, if you were motivated to go out and vote for Jill Stein, and then on the ballot, you have your option of your second choice. If it's not Jill Stein, would you prefer uh, Gary Johnson, Trump, or Hillary? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of those people, you know, could say, like, I want Jill Stein. I'm voting my conscience. I want Jill Stein. If I can't have Jill Stein, I would rather have, let's say, Gary Johnson. Um if I can't have Jill Stein or Gary Johnson, I would prefer Hillary to Trump. I think I think we would have seen a lot of that, but we don't have that option. We just had Hillary and Trump. And so if you don't feel like you can vote for Hillary, you vote for Trump or you vote for uh, someone whose your vote's going to be discarded when you get to the Electoral College. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so after years of Paul LePage, main voters are like, oh. Boy, fuck this. Ranked choice voting. So who knows? Maybe four years of Trump, America will be like, oh, boy. I don't think they'll understand the benefits, though. I think I think there's uh, so many ways you can spin it to be like, oh, this is going to cause confusion. This is going to cause chaos. This is what, what do you mean? Like, you know, I mean, it, 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 I think it would be a real hard sell, but maybe not. Maybe there's maybe there's a way to sell it and some. Somebody would figure that out yeah, and crack I, that nut. I think um, what, hopefully, hopefully, hopefully what we'll see is increasing interest. So Maine does this. Maybe it works out well in Maine. Then, I don't know, New Hampshire does it. Then Colorado does it. Then, I don't know, who else? Oregon. I mean, California has it in a bunch of places. So, Cause, I mean, it, it, the, these, these are our issues, right, with the two-party system, is that we have winner-take-all voting. Um, we have redistricting that's in the hands of the party. Mm-hmm. And we have campaigns that are financed heavily by moneyed interests. And it's those three factors that contribute to the two-party winner-take-all system that we have. And those are three things. Those are three sort of levers of power Mm. that the people who are currently in power, I don't think would want to take their hands off of. Yeah, that's a good point. So, I mean, and they're the ones who would have to make it happen. Yes. Yes, probably, I suppose. I'm not really sure how it happened in Maine. Um, I guess there was enough interest in Maine. to. Ma- I mean, after the catastrophe of this governor that they've got, uh, I guess there was enough momentum to make it happen there. And uh, so, I don't know, maybe we just need a few more bad governors. Well, I think, you know, state, I think there are definitely states where it could happen. I think the idea of it happening nationally is... We're probably pretty far from that. I mean, it's almost unthinkable that that it could happen unthinkable things have happened it's true but i mean who in congress has any appetite for giving up the taking their hands off the the levers of power that got them there right i don't know i don't know how you would i don't know how you would do that i mean it's you know by ranked choice voting is a threat to a lot of incumbents and we have an incumbent Congress. I mean, if you are, if you have a seat, it's real, real hard to lose it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I don't know. <laughs> like, if there's demand, even if there's like intense national demand for it, 
Sure. And maybe it's happening in the States. In an alternative approach to districting that's sort of like, you know, based more on, 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 on objective statistics rather than voting histories and demographics and that sort of thing, just sort of based on population units. Um, They don't, nobody wants that. They want to cluster their, the people who are, they know will vote for them Mm -hmm. into these little pockets. Well, I mean, Democrats have really been fucked by that. uh, Yeah. Since, I mean, for this entire decade, they'll be fucked. And Mm -hmm. so who knows uh, if after this, there'll be some interest to, you know, Democrats would be like, Either they can be like, all right, let's do to them what they did to us, redistrict. I mean, so background on this is mm-hmm. after the last census, the Republicans redistricted the entire country, essentially, uh, so that it's virtually impossible for Democrats to hold a majority in Congress until 2020. And in 2020, there'll be another redistricting. Uh, and maybe the Democrats will be like, all right, now we're going to do what the Republicans did in 2010. How, or, how, how did they do that? Uh, so basically just copy what the Republicans did. The Republicans had a really good system and they talked about, I mean, they were explicit about this is what we're going to do. We're going to use the census data. We're going to pack these redistricting things with our people. And they But who gets to determine the districts? Um, Political appointees. Which could be... Yeah. Republican. Yeah. And so Demo- if in 2020- essentially yeah. Democrats just did not push on this in 2010. And it's a thing they could have done. It's a thing they could have done. It's a thing okay. they should have done because Republicans were talking explicitly about it in 2008. I mean, if they were talking explicitly about it, it there, there's nothing illegal about gerrymandering or, or unethical. I mean, I know the court mm-hmm. has up, upheld districting the way it is. I think there was like one district in Texas that was non-contiguous and crazy that mm-hmm. they were like, well, this doesn't make any sense. It's like pockets spread out over a, a, an insane amount of space. Yeah. So what's, of course it's unethical, but uh, what happened is the party spoke in general terms, like members of the party spoke in general yeah. terms of like, oh, we're going to, we're going to work on redistricting. Uh-huh. And of course the people who are actually doing the work and the people who are appointed and the people who are doing the appointing, you know, of course they said, oh, this is completely nonpartisan. And of course it wasn't right so i guess my question is in 2020 who gets to do the redistricting like who who actually does it like makes the districts there are i mean various from um state to state okay uh but i think in general it's uh political appointees uh of uh whoever i think it's the the governor's office gets to appoint people Mm -hmm. so and so you know there was just republicans had a real easy time getting exactly who they wanted on these on these in these seats uh, because Democrats didn't really do that much to, it just wasn't a focus. So, uh, maybe make it more of a focus going forward, you guys. So, and also the Republicans had really good intelligence on mm-hmm. how they should do this redistricting. Uh, it was, a pro- I think it was called project red map was the name of the, the, they have this like software that they had d- d- developed specifically. Why is this okay? I don't know. Like why? Uh, I mean, it seems so fundamentally undemocratic i mean we we didn't even talk about like voter suppression but i mean it, it seems like there are all these uh strategies that are explicitly in place to sway elections why are these things okay i do not know uh, okay i mean it, it's uh it's real it's real trouble yeah yeah that uh you can basically and, and the thing is i I wouldn't want the Democrats to do it. I would want yeah. genuinely nonpartisan. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would want 
groups of people just grouped by some criteria having to do with population and ideally those populations would comprise people of various political positions so that there is a real contest of ideas i mean that's that, that's the thing that i feel like has been lacking like i don't think we've had a contest of ideas maybe in decades uh, and that's just not going to happen the way we're set up. We, we, we're in a specifically, explicitly in a country that can only ever have two parties right. at the national level, and even at, like well, primarily some, at the state level. In, in the way the districting set up, only one of those parties has a chance in a lot of districts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so you know, people will say stuff you know about this. Um, people, the Green Party and the Libertarian Party running candidates for for uh, president. You know, something Dan Savage in particular was saying was before you run people for president, run them for local office and get them into smaller, lower roles. And I don't think that's completely fair because Mm -hmm. we have a system that's set up to prevent that. So, right. I mean, it's impossible for them to win at the national level and it's largely impossible for them to win at the state level. That's not always the case. We have Mm -hmm. a socialist and city council here in Seattle and, you know, people win all kinds of, you know, the third parties can win. Uh, smaller races. Well, well that's that's. I mean, I mean, based on what you were saying in Maine, where there has been a, a third party presence for a while. I mean, it sounds like that's the only way to really change a voting system is that you have to have a a, a track record of third party engagement and third mm-hmm. party franchise to then change the way the system works to further allow. You know, for more options. And even in Maine, Paula Page is a Republican. It's not like he's some third party guy who won. Oh, no, I get it. But I mean, but but they have that history, at least. Exactly. They've uh, got the cool moose party. Oh, no. Remember them? I do. <laughs> That's Maine. That's Maine. I didn't know that. Yep. I don't even know what the cool moose party stands for, but uh, I assume Joe Camel, but with antlers. Yeah, no, I love it. I love the cool moose. <laughs> uh, is Paula Page a cool moose? Oh, maybe. He seems like a pretty uncool moose. He's, he's a very uncool moose. Um, it's the greatest insult you can give someone in Maine. So looking looking forward, we've got, in some places in the country, there are elections in 2017, right? And uh, there are definitely elections in 2018. There, there are teeny tiny elections in 2017. But, but, but why be dismissive like that? <laughs> no, I'm not saying to be dismissive. I'm uh, saying uh, oh, sneak, wait, sneak up on them. Okay, well, it sounded like you were like, oh, but those are just little... Like, no, no, no. Like, these things... I hope this is a wake up call that these things matter. Mm. Um, I mean, in some cases they don't because like, it is like fucking rigged. Uh, So the question is, how do we dismantle that rigging? And how do you like starting in 2017, what are the, the incremental steps to dismantling that rigging? Like I said, I don't, I don't want it to be rigged in favor of the Democrats. I I think that would be just as bad. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think, there should be a contest of ideas. And I think that we're not set up to have that anymore. There are a series of steps that lead from here to uh, rank choice voting at a national level. And I don't know what those 5,000 steps are. Okay. Okay. But not even like rank choice. Like what are the steps people can do to just improve the situation and maybe provide some kind of bulwark against uh, insanity until the end of uh, of this administration, in the short term, yeah, get rich and give a lot of money to the Democrats. Okay, not not a, not helpful. <laughs> I know there's nothing helpful. No, that's no, not. There's, true. there's that's nothing not true. anyone no, no, no. can do. No, um, 
I think one of the most important things right now is to make it easy for as easy as possible for Democrats to obstruct Republican threats. How do people how do individuals do that? Money. Well, do the protests provide some sort of cover for Democrats in that they can point to huge amounts of Americans who are opposed to certain policies and the protests, even if they're maybe not directly shaping policy, do they not provide a very visible sign that uh, that, that there is resistance yes. to this direction? So if you don't have money, uh, what you can do is provide some cover. And that's something that's done en masse. And there are right now big protests going on, and those are very uh, helpful in that they, they – give Democrats some cover to say, you know, okay, this is what our people want. Uh, more productively going forward, there is a great thread that's been going around on the internet, and you may have seen it about, uh, it was a staffer, a congressional staffer, who was writing about the most effective ways to let your representatives know what you want. And uh, those ways are uh, physical letters uh, and phone calls. Phone calls are particularly important. They I saw have, that, yeah. Phone calls were the number one, right? Yeah. Uh, also walking into an office, uh, oh, yeah. going to your district office rather than calling the D.C. office, mm -hmm. uh, but bug people at your district office. And here's the crucial thing is a lot of people have to do it. You right. can do it on your own. Fine. Good job. But what you got to do is get a lot of other people to do it with you. But what about change.org? Can't you just sign your email to a petition? No, you cannot. <laughs> what does that do? Does that have a huge impact? Uh, it, it opens your email address to uh, potential hacking by uh, whoever breaks into change.org. Uh, what about a, a Facebook post with a with a like square image with some inspiring words? Uh, that may reveal to you which of your friends you may wish to unfriend. Yeah. Um, okay. So so one thing to do is to protest en masse mm -hmm. uh, oh, um, en masse Ooh, i'm on point i'm a ballerina okay. um protest in in large numbers so that when representatives are saying the people don't want this there's evidence mm -hmm. that the people don't want it yeah and again i want to emphasize the key thing here is in large numbers yeah organize and, and you know again i don't i'm not going to tell oppressed people how to respond to their oppression but I, I I would suggest that perhaps peaceful protests mm. uh, with positive messages about change or uh, being kind of specific about what you're resisting yeah. um, might be more effective than violent protest. I would agree with that mostly. Well, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think there is... I'm not going to say violence is never the answer because, you know... We certainly hold up the the Tea Party, mm -hmm. uh, not 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 the Tea Party of recent years, but the original Tea Party, as you know, a seminal event in American history. And there are many protests that have uh, destroyed property that have had an impact uh, for positive change. So I'm not going to say that that's never the case, but I, I mean, I don't. I, it seems to me like that should not be your first choice. Yeah, I don't think breaking the windows at Starbucks is the best thing that you can do. Right. So, I mean, I would say that making your voice heard in showing that huge numbers of people peacefully saying, we refuse to accept this, 
and making sure that the this is clear, yeah, what, what gonna, it is they refuse to accept. It's going to take a while for us to figure out that message because yeah. there's a lot of confusion and angst and emotion. Sure. One of the one of my favorite signs from this, these protests that have happened over the last few days, uh, not because of its specificity or, or, or its actual practical uh, application, but its ability to encapsulate how we are all feeling is some guy holding up a sign that said, not usually a sign guy, but geez. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. I, I mean, I think, you know, the the feeling I'm getting from the last few days has been very similar to after Prop 8, just on a much bigger scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, it, it, you know, there's been a lot of echoes in this whole election, echoes of the California recall and the election of Arnold Schwarzenegger, which people were like, oh, ha ha, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, and then, oh, well, what happened? We have Arnold Schwarzenegger now. Why did we recall Gray Davis and replace him with the Terminator? Yeah. Um, you know, and Arnold Schwarzenegger was not a disaster for California. He maybe uh, didn't accomplish all the things people thought he was going to, but California survived. And then under, uh, what's his name? Jerry Brown. Yes. Has gone on to thrive. Uh, so California so, so California survived Arnold Schwarzenegger, a guy who had no political qualifications. qualifications. Um, but I think it was a similar thing where it was a joke until it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And then with Prop 8, it wasn't necessarily a joke, but it was sort of this just expectation that California's cool, man. It was dismissed. It was, yeah, it was dismissed. It was not taken seriously. Until so, it was too late. Right. It wasn't, a, again, it wasn't a joke, but it wasn't taken seriously either. Mm-hmm. And and then there was the outrage after. And I think and I think with Trump, we had a thing where he wasn't taken seriously and he was a joke until he wasn't. And mm-hmm. people are just waking up to that. So I get that right now these protests are just venting, I think, a, a shock. Like they're, they're just expressing shock that this this comically evil platform and I don't say evil to be hyperbolic. I mean, it was like a supervillain's platform. Yes. Somehow was accepted by a huge number of people across the country. Um, and I think that shock is what's prompting these protests now. But as we move forward, and there are specific things that this administration puts forward, you know, I think we need to be resisting those specific things. Yep. You know, if there's a deportation effort, if there is uh, an effort to start eroding marriage rights like offshore off, offshore oil welling oil sure. drilling and all that stuff yeah yeah and it's gonna be a real annoying it's gonna be so much work and it's gonna be such a pain in the neck it's gonna be just bad news all the time and the work of being outraged and annoyed and and the worst thing you can do going back to something i was saying earlier is just be like oh well we'll just agree to disagree uh yeah you you can't have it become normal you can't have uh, you know, a rise of 10 degrees Celsius over the next century, well, that's just going to be normal. Uh, you can't have, uh, well, we're just, you know, de- we're, we're not allowing Muslims in. That can't become normal. Right. And, in, and to that end, so we've got, uh, we've got protesting, we've got uh, keeping on your representatives at their local district office, mm-hmm. uh, ideally calling them or going in in person. Yeah, and you can't do this by yourself. That, right. That's That's another part that, that like, cannot be... It cannot be forgotten. Uh, when you're doing something like this, either you got to look around for someone who is making it happen and join them and then recruit your friends. Or if it's not happening, you got to start it yourself. Okay. And that it sucks. It sucks that you have to do that. And it's a lot of work and a lot of people are not going to be good at it, but it's okay. If you're not good at it, you just got to do it. 
And what can you do to support candidates who will be your representative resisting these things in local, state, and national legislature? One of the easiest things you can do is signal boosting. So uh, get on their mailing list and uh, whenever they've got something that they, you know, some statement that they're putting out or some event that they're doing, uh, you know, spread the word. It's not it's not enough just to receive their word and listen to them. You've got to help them spread it. Uh, And also when they have an event, uh, a lot of representatives have open houses and town halls and they go around. You got to pay attention to those and you can't just go by yourself. You got to bring a lot of people. And I've done this. I've done the organizing for this. And it's hard because if you go to your friends and you're like there's going to be a political open house and i'd like you to come and help me uh nag them about climate change oh boy nobody wants to do that because it's on a saturday and it's usually at 8 a.m but it sucks so what you got to do is uh even when these things aren't happening you just have to let your friends know this is something that matters to you so they're ready when you come to them with the ask uh, and then you've got to offer something nice to them. Uh, you know, one of the ways that I made people come out for stuff is I would do it in conjunction with some other event. Uh, for example, there was a design charrette about um, turning Melrose Ave into a complete street right now. You know, it's just a horrible traffic sewer. And so West Hollywood was thinking about making it a complete street, with, which means it would have been a street that everyone can use rather than just cars. Uh, so there'd be, you know, bicycle use and pedestrian use alongside the cars. So everyone can get where they're going instead of just uh, one group of people. And this is in Los Angeles where nobody cares about anyone who's not in a car. That's... So what I had to do was... I think the cars vote. Yeah, the cars actually do get a vote. Uh, I had to throw a picnic. I had a picnic that happened You're, at the Many same of your time. picnics were Trojan horses. Yes, for, yeah. yes. I, I organized picnics that turned into, that was secretly was something else. Uh, whether it was just showing people, hey, look, the LA River can be rehabilitated. It uh, can't. It can. Yep. It can. Okay. It can be rehabilitated. I'm not going to say it's going to be the jewel of the Nile. But, sure. Uh, oh, Danny DeVito. <laughs> yes. Uh, but, it, it, there, it, you know, just we threw a picnic and I was like, look, you guys, this is the LA river that you're always making fun of. Uh, now you know what it is and it's not beautiful, but, uh, imagine now when you see the drawings of what it could be now, you know, Oh, that hideous thing that Matt showed us, this is what they want to make it into. Wow. You know, and, and with the design charrette, uh, you know, I got people, I got like a dozen people to come out to this thing that normally these things are only attended by wackos and retirees, uh, and, uh, you know, I got a bunch of young, I'm both you're, you're yes. And I got a bunch of, uh, young and young in political terms means under 50. So I got a bunch of young people to come out and say, Oh, you know, it would be nice to have benches on the sidewalk and it would be nice to have street lights that actually illuminate the sidewalk. So I don't get mugged when I'm walking home. I remember you had people in their thirties go to some event and didn't somebody say it's so nice to see young people. Yes. Yes, it was amazing. And for like my 35 year old friend to be like, I haven't called a young person in like 20 years. Right. Um, but I mean, I, I think that does illustrate who goes to these things. Yes, it's people who are retired and have lots of time. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm no, not, I'm not that, saying that's, that's great, yeah. but they are perhaps not the most representative group of people. Uh, and it is literal crazy people. 
Yes, that I've definitely heard from you as well. Yes, because uh, I, you know, I'll be honest. I don't go to these things. This is more your bag, baby. Uh, maybe and I it should it be wasn't. my thing. They, they're super boring and they're super annoying and they're yeah. awful. Another thing that I did uh, for my picnics to get people to come out to things is uh, I literally gave people prizes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, people got. I made little buttons. You guys, it is super cheap to make cute little one-inch buttons to give to people. Uh, so you can. It's like. 30 bucks for um so i describe my penis yeah okay. cute little one inch button it's like 30 bucks for 200 buttons uh and it takes like a week and a half to get them made uh, from pure buttons it's purebuttons.com and so what Ooh, i did is when people came out to these events i had little buttons that i gave people and then people were like oh this is great and they would collect them and they'd be like yeah i got my button uh, uh Okay, so we got buttons and picnics. Yeah. Uh, we've got... And so basically, I, this is all to say that you guys, you just got to organize. You got to throw parties and you got to make them fun. You can't just be like, come out to the city council meeting. Ugh. So there's, there's that. What about phone banking? Does that have an impact or not? It does. Okay. Is that something people ought to look into doing if they have uh, an election coming up and they want to get somebody into their city, state, or uh, or, or into the federal government that's going to resist this stuff yes uh, it is something that is effective it's not for everyone uh, i find it very difficult to speak one-on-one with strangers and sure. it is not something that i would be great at and i haven't done it but it is something that is effective what about canvassing is that effective it is not super effective for changing people but it is valuable for gathering data okay so yeah that is effective too so if someone's like i'm going to be canvassing yep that's that's useful uh, another thing that's useful, I mean, essentially, if you contact the, the, the party or if you contact your candidate and uh, just say, I'm, I'm here to help, they will tell you what you can do to help. They will have the strategy. They have people who know what works and what who know what's going to be effective. And they'll say, we really need canvassers right now. We really need phone bankers. We really need whatever it is you can do. What if you don't know what's happening in your like local in like your town or city government or your state government? Like, how do you? How do you even start? Where where do you start to get involved? Honestly, it's okay if you don't know what's happening. What you can do, if, so everyone's got some friend who is politically aware. So you can just ask some friend who knows this kind of thing. If you do not have that friend, uh, you have a choice. You can either get really well informed by reading all the newspapers and going on all the forums and looking online and, you know, reading going to going to um i forget what i think it's like congress.gov or something one of those things where you put in your zip code and it tells you who your elected officials are and then just go to their website and see what their recent news items are what about the parties is that not sort of what they exist for like is is it possible to get in touch with you know i'll say the, the republican party the democratic party the green party uh the uh whatever the other ones are i don't know if libertarians have a central government or if they have just a statue of ayn rand but yes so it's not a great way so there are things you can do but it takes a little Mm -hmm. bit of work so you can you can get on their mailing list and what that will do is it'll occasionally keep you informed and mostly you will receive requests for money oh that's real true yeah that's real real true so if you want to stay informed you have to do the work of going to the website and like reading through press releases and blog posts i mean on the grand scheme of things, that is not a lot of work. I mean, we all spend a lot of time on the internet reading through things. So, porn mostly. Porn mostly, yeah. So, I mean, imagine how effective it would be if the Democratic website just, like, if the party plat- website just had a lot of porn on it. Sure. Um, I mean, that's, then then we've gone full idiocracy. I mean, why not really go all the way? So, uh, yeah, you can go just go to the website and see what's up. And that will tell you, like, oh, we're protesting the Keystone Pipeline now, I guess. Okay, sure. 
and and that will tell you what issues are going on and then you can get in touch and they'll be like oh i mean mm-hmm. the first thing they will say is like can we have some money please yeah and if you're like uh no but i want to help they'll be like oh okay well uh your person power is useful too mm-hmm. uh here's here's where to go and what to do i mean ideally you did run into a situation when we first moved to West Hollywood where you went to a town hall meeting and you talked to your representative and he was basically like, oh, if you don't like what I'm doing, maybe you should move. Yes. But but that, I think, is an edge case. Yes. So <laughs> we don't really need to un- like, I mean, that's a bad example. It, it is. Uh, yes. So and if I had gone to him with, you know, basically what I said is uh, that I liked I, basically, I like density. I wanted I wanted more neighbors, and I wanted more stuff to go to, and more things to do in my neighborhood, uh, rather than big empty spaces. Uh, and he was like, "Maybe you're living in the wrong town. Uh, that's not great." Uh, so if I had gone to someone with whom I agreed, I mean, sure, it, sure, honestly, sure, that was a useful thing because then I knew, okay, this isn't somebody I want to work with, right? Uh, so it means go seek someone out. And for example, if you're in West Hollywood, um, uh, Lindsay Horvath is is the one to watch and the one to help out. Uh, she's fantastic. She a Herman endorsement. Yeah, honestly, she's great. Um, so I, you know, you find find the elected official that you're like, ooh, I like what you're up to, and <laughs> yes, and and hit on them. Uh, yes, politically speaking, which means uh, ask them what you can do to help their their work. Or if you're in Brian Sims district, just just hit on him. Yeah, and I'm gonna warn you. Yeah, it's often boring. Oh, I'm, it's gotta be. It's gotta be. A, miserable grind yeah. but so that's why that's one of the reasons why it's so important to get your friends and your friends who have a, a tolerance for something that's a little boring uh but if you can get people to go to these things and i was i was able to make this happen uh and once you can get your friends to go to something often they will become engaged so i got people to go to bike coalition stuff and you know it wasn't a ton of people it was like four or five people maybe and so we went to this public meeting and ed begley jr was there ed begley jr was there he's fantastic uh it's so weird to do politics in in la because sometimes literally this was like the back room at a library a mm-hmm. hundred people were there maybe a hundred people and everyone gets up to the microphone and talks and it's all a bunch of weirdos and then ed begley gets up the weirdest weirdo of them all uh because he's super into bikes sure and uh said some nice things and it's just like what what are you doing here um George Takei made the subway happen. Uh, that's right. Uh, that wasn't at a public meeting, but no. uh, yes, uh, George Takei in the seventies is responsible for partially responsible for the Los Angeles subway. So uh, anyway, blah, 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 blah. so what I'm saying <laughs> is, I got people to come to these meetings, and my friends who came to these things were like, "Holy shit, this is what's happening!" I mean, it's kind of an outrage because we went to this meeting, and not only did they see how frustrating it is not th- not to be listened to, mm-hmm. because what happened was. Everyone who was running the meeting, all the all the political, all the the, the um, I don't know, they weren't elected officials. All the, I think there was a commission. I can't sure. remember. But everyone who was running the meeting, the people in power, were like, uh, "Okay, well, it's clear that one side has gotten a lot of people to come out in support of their thing. So uh, we're only going to let a few of those people speak." No. I mean, what could be less democratic than that? Sure. Uh, and so my friends who had come out and like had things to say were like. Are you kidding me? Fuck you. Uh, and that was an extremely effective way to get them to want to, to give them investment in this, that someone like directly told them, we don't want to hear from you because there's more of you. OK, I mean, that that seems like a catalyst. But then, like, wh- what is the follow through there? Like, how, how do you actually make something happen? Yeah. Because like, just getting people angry 
getting people angry is easy. I mean, we, we saw that. Mm-hmm. How do you then turn that into action? Yeah, you got to keep on. So you got to keep you got to pay attention to what's going on. So find your issue or find your candidate. Right. Stay connected. Know what's going on week to week. Check in or be on their mailing list or on their Facebook page. See what's going on. And they will put out calls to action every now and then. And they will say, we've got a, we've got a meeting coming up or we've, I need letters or whatever. And then you go to your friends who are minimally activated and you say, you guys, uh, I need a favor. And the seven of us, can we all please, however many it is, can you guys just, I'm going to send you the text of a letter to send. Please print this out and put it in the mail. Uh, or I'm going to give you the text of what to say when you call the office. Just call the office and say this. And if you do this, uh, you, you know, one, one good way to do it is we're all going to get together for lunch and do it. Mm-hmm. You know, or whatever. But you have to be the one who pays attention and you have to be the one who reaches out to your friends, multiple friends, and says, you guys, now's the time we have to do this kind of boring thing. And then once we're done, it feels really good once it's done and once you've all done your speaking out. Uh, it, it, it really is. It's a little boring. But uh, once it's done, you have this great feeling of, OK, I didn't just sit there. And one of the least effective. This is a terrible thing to say, but uh one of the least effective things you can do is just show up on election day and vote mm-hmm. uh, because your vote is one among millions. Mm-hmm. Uh, great. Good job. Uh, what you have to do is the work between the elections of staying on top of your issues, whatever those issues are, and then mobilizing what friends you have who you can count on, who you can trust to take action. And when you're reaching out to friends, how do you overcome the idea that their actions aren't going to have an impact or that they don't have a stake in this? There's a couple things you can do. One is let them know that this is personally important to you. And if they're your friends, hopefully they will recognize that this is something that friends do for each other. Uh, another thing is you help them. So see- guilt. So guilt. Uh, why don't you call your mother? No, it's not necessarily why haven't you done this for me. Yeah, it's, sure. This is something that's important to me. And I'd like to ask your help with something that is important to me. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's a nice thing to say. Mm-hmm. And it's something that is easy for people if they really care about you to say like, sure. Mm-hmm. You got to do it one-on-one. No mass messages. No spamming your friends. No BCC emails. Those do not work. You have to say, hey, Mark, or whoever. Please. No, I'll, I'll, I'll be Mark. Let's roll for this. Uh, oh, boy. I just, oh, I was on a toilet all day and I feel 10 pounds lighter. I'll tell you. <laughs> um, oh, Mark, I'm, you you look amazing. Oh, I've got the mark of the beast. Thank you. You look like you've given birth. Oh, I've gotten glowing. Uh, wow. So let's say oh, in this hypothetical roleplay scenario, I'm trying to get you to come out for a complete street spin. Oh, what? A complete what? Complete meats? So you know how I'm always going on about bikes? Uh, oh, boy, do you ever. It drives me crazy. Oh. So there's this thing coming up that would make my life so much easier and safer and prevent me from getting killed by cars. But I like my car. I know you do. So the great thing about this is that it's not going to make your life any worse. It only makes life better for everybody. Well, for you, I don't ride a bike. I know, but your best friend does. Oh, you're my best friend? I didn't know that. Mike, who else is going to listen to you talk about You don't even know my name. I've become Mike. Are you Mike or Mark? I don't remember. Anyway, the point is... <laughs> Some best friend you turned out to be. Bad role play. Bad role play. Uh, yeah. Okay, so, so now I'm a dog. Let's role play that. Okay. <laughs> Who's a big 
Who's a good boy? Who's just put your paw print on this letter? Oh, this has become erotic and strange. Yes. Anyway, so what you say is basically find find some basically understand your issue, understand why your issue is a good idea. So it's sure. a complete street. Look, I bike everywhere, and you know that I'm a nut about this kind of stuff. Oh, you sure are. And I could be killed because this street oh, is so unsafe. If you were killed, I wouldn't collect my ten dollars that you owe me. Oh, I, see. I, see. I didn't know what that was in reference yeah. to. Uh, and so there's this thing coming up, and it just takes like an hour of your time. If you could come to this meeting with me, it would potentially save my life can i listen to, to musical theater you can do whatever the hell you want okay. all you got to do is come i'll tell you exactly what to do when they call you put your name on the little sign up mm. thing when they call your name you get up there you read a thing for 30 seconds and you're done i dreamed a dream about a bike yes and is then that... maybe we'll go to dinner or something hey, oh what, what is it gonna be shrimps on a barbie sure doll yep yep it's gonna be shrimps on a barbie doll like, people cover, might give you some looks cover her in shrimp and melt her down I'm gonna have a uh, yeah. I'm gonna have a steak on a Ken, and oh. the, and and Chipper is that her other friend's name? Yep. Skip, Skipper. Skipper. It would Chipper. Yes, and yeah, Skipper and the Chipper. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, that was a very very bizarre role play, but yeah. hopefully that helps. Okay, so let's let's review and recap here what we've discussed. You can know what's happening. Know what's happening. Know your issue, so know that when issue. you're making the case, you actually know what to say about it. Sure anticipate like there may be some pushback so with the complete streets thing with some of my friends are like oh, fucking bikes mm-hmm. uh and you could be like look this makes life easier for everybody it means that we can all share the road bikes aren't gonna be getting in your way because they'll have a dedicated lane it doesn't slow anyone down so know the arguments that you want your friends to sure. make Sure, that, that bikes aren't gonna get in your way now that seems like a compelling one to me yeah because that seems to be one of the big complaints that uh, bikes are always getting in front of the cars and bugging them yep Yep. So, um, you know, and this is something that the organizers who you're working with will help you with because they will already have those those arguments. Sure. They will know what to say, whether it's the bike coalition or an elected official or whoever you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. They will be like, here are the main reasons that this is such a great idea. And all you got to do is repeat them back to some elected official. Tell them to your friends. Tell your friends to repeat them back. What if the elected official hits you, uh, hits your friends with a question and they're like, oh, I don't know. I just got a talking point list. <laughs> I mean, like, uh, like, is it really a good idea to have people who don't understand the issue advocate for? I mean, I, 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 mean, I guess that's all what most that advocacy is. That is yeah. all that happens. So elected officials have almost no interest in asking questions. They will, sure, hear, they will hear the sure, feedback. Sure. They might say, if it's a great elected official, like Gavin yeah. Newsom, for example, he is an incredible listener. An incredible hair. Yep. And same with Hillary Clinton, an incredible listener who just wants to hear from people. And if your friends are asked a question and they say, I'm here to support my friend. That is just as compelling as anything else. Okay. I mean, in fact, sure. sometimes more. If they're like, honestly, I don't have a stake in this, but my friend does, and I care enough to come out for this, that is something that they will remember. Sure. That I, I can see that. I can see that being the case. Yeah. Uh, so that's what you do. Um, and, you know, it, so that's if it's an issue. If it's an elected official, mm-hmm. um, then, you know, what you're doing is you're pressing them on some issue. Or if you want to support them, then it's not so much a case of coming out for open houses because that doesn't support the official. But it's, you know, phone banking and the door to door. And again, when you do that, they will give you all the things to say and all the, you know, the script for what to how to handle different situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now let me riddle you this. What about running for your local government if you've got the stomach for it it is rough sure what if a bunch of bright lgbt folk in the next couple years run for their their local offices and then 
bump those up to state offices. And then, I mean, by 2024, I mean, you know, 10, a lot can happen in 10 years. Um, I mean, so I just, I want to be clear. This is not something you do for fun. Well, no, I mean, as, as you can, you can make occasional activism fun, but running for office is real rough, real hard work. Mm -hmm. But if you can do it, if you, if it's what you want, it's real effective. Sure. I mean, there's obviously a reason so few people do it. And there's also probably a reason why the the type of person who tends to end up in elected office, uh, especially at the national level does. Um, it, it's that, you know, people who don't have a certain level of compartmentalization skill probably can only go so far in mm-hmm. politics. But if you want to have the most direct impact on resisting these things, is it maybe not a good idea to try to get yourself in a position of being on the inside to do it yeah and just be clear that means dropping everything you this this is this becomes your thing well it doesn't does that not maybe have something to do with the level you're doing it at because are there not smaller towns where being part of the town government is a part-time job yes kind of it is a part-time job for which you are always on call. Correct. So even, I mean, my brother was on, I think, city council or t- town council in, in, in uh, the town that he lived in, Connecticut. Right. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's you're always in the public eye. Sure. Someone can call you at any time. you got to deal with weird problems at all hours of the night. Sure. Uh, and, I mean, just getting into office means, like, it's it's not like you run in your spare time. Right. I mean, it, it, is, it is your thing. Sure. Uh, and then once you're in, <laughs> you're in mm-hmm. for a while. Uh, so there, there are small, small roles like you know county surveyor, for example, or right. you know school board, and, and these I, things may not seem important. But if we're talking about affecting a change, I mean, is that not where it starts? Sure, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, once you're on school board, suddenly you're somebody, and you can like when you when you are a public official like that, you're the one that people are listening to now. And mm-hmm. when you say, you guys, you know, if you're on school board, uh, this textbook thing is coming up, and it's really important that we blah 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 textbook or this funding for the music programs coming up and i need you guys to come out to support this Mm -hmm. you're the one people are listening to and if you are a marginalized person how do how do you pull that off it's real tough um so uh, this is a because when you think about these these roles they're often filled by the wealthy white people in the community yeah so how how does someone who is not a wealthy white person do that so uh this is a very technical word, but we're going to talk about intersectionality. So you do it with coalitions and you do it with allies. Um, it is tough for marginalized people to ascend to power. Um, but the thing is, is there are a lot of marginalized people. And when we work together, we can achieve a lot. So, you know, an example that I like to go back to is how Harvey Milk worked with labor unions. And he supported them. They supported him. Um, nobody has a, no marginalized person is struggling in a vacuum. And uh, by supporting each other's liberation, uh, we all get to where we're going faster. So on a practical, like, what does that look like on a practical level when you're running for office? Mm -hmm. So let's say you're a lesbian of color running for office in Oklahoma. Um, You know, obviously you've got your constituency, which is lesbians of color, but they're not the only person, they're not the only group that you're going to represent. So what you do is you reach out to allies and you say, 
hey, I'm running for this thing, and here's how I'm going to support what you want. Uh, and I could really use your your assistance in this race. And maybe you reach out to labor unions, maybe you reach out to disabled community, maybe you reach out to veterans, maybe whoever it is. But you make it clear, like, I'm not just running for me, I'm running for everybody. And in particular, I'm attuned to your needs. Uh, and it also means, you know, making good on that promise. Uh, if, you know, whatever marginalized group you're in, uh, paying attention to intersecting axes of oppression and doing what you can. Before he was elected to anything, Barack Obama was a community organizer, right? Yeah. What is that? What is community organizing? Oh, it can mean a lot of different things. Uh, and I'm not 100% familiar with what exactly he did. Well, it doesn't have to be necessarily what he did, but what, like in general, what is that idea? Uh, it can mean a lot of things, but you know, generally what it means is what we've been talking about, paying attention to the problems that are going on or the opportunities that come up and knowing which groups to go to to say, hey, you guys, uh, this thing's coming up and I could really use your assistance with it. Or, hey, you guys, this thing's coming up and it's going to affect you. Please come out. Please write these letters. Please go to this rally. Please uh, phone bank for this person, whatever it takes. Essentially, it's building relationships with large numbers of people and helping them. And is that not maybe a way to build up a, a constituency for when you do choose to run for something that you've already, you know, built up a, a group of supporters who you've demonstrated that you care about their issues and that you can advocate for them and, and affect some sort of change for yeah, them. Precisely. I mean, you can just come out of nowhere and run for office and maybe you'll get lucky. But having a demonstrated benefit for groups of people in your community is a lot more effective than just being like, oh, surprise, I'm running. Uh, so, you know, in terms of how do you get into office, particularly as a marginalized person, um, you might start by not running for office. You might start by working on issues and building your list and knowing who does what. You know, when I was in West Hollywood, I was, you know, able to get like a dozen or so people to come out for something. And I mean, I was very focused narrowly on complete streets uh, because in, in part, you know, there was nothing to do with LGBT in West Hollywood. That was that was well taken care of. Uh, so that was my thing. And and over time, if like if I really dedicated myself to that, I probably could have run for office with some amount of support. Uh, I would have been unpopular because complete streets are are, are marginalized, in, you know, in, in, in West Hollywood. Um, but. Uh, you know, the, the, knowing who the figures in the community are and what they need and how to help them and, you know, that people are listening to you. I mean, as soon as elected officials saw that I could get even like less than a dozen people to come to something, suddenly they knew who I was. They were in contact with me. And when I emailed them, they responded. Uh, and that's a big deal. I mean, it does not take a lot of people. It does, it, you know, I, I, I was bringing out fewer people than I have fingers and I have, and you have a lot of fingers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it does not take much to get the attention of elected officials. And once you have their attention, uh, you're part of the machine. And uh, well, now that doesn't sound like a positive thing, but it is. Okay. I explain. Uh, cause the machine isn't, isn't the machine, the very thing that, uh, this, this recent movement ostensibly was reacting against they may have been reacting against some other things too well sure there are a lot of machines and uh, you know there's never not going to be a machine unless we're living in in total anarchy uh in, like in the mad max world. But even in the mad max world there's there's machines there's political machines uh, uh, so you're a part of the system you, you become a part of the system you can have an effect on the system and that's what you want 
But in a corrupt system, are you not corrupted by it? Yeah, welcome to politics. That's why I said it takes it takes a lot of stomach. Right. And, and that's probably why we started this discussion with you saying the only way to have an effect would be to be a rich Democrat. Yeah, that is the system that, that we've got. And that's the system that you'll be a part of. And if you want to be a part of a different system, uh, you're going to have to find some piece of undiscovered land and start your own country. I mean, is that true, though, or is there something? Well, you can reform. I, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, you can reform. But what we're talking about here is uh, reforming a machine, not sending it to the junkyard and building a new one. Correct, correct. Yeah. See, that's one of my concerns is that the the counter reaction to Trump, because if, if the pendulum swings the other way, it's now swung so far in one direction that, you know, now we have to smash the, the Trump system. And so we're going to get a you know equally reactionary response to that that's also not going to be like good for anyone exactly yep yep that is uh highly likely um because i you know at least because i understand that people were not excited by hillary's idea of incrementalism and sort of tweaking the obama trajectory um that's not a thing that gets people passionate in the way that Bernie Sanders message got people passionate. Um, but you know, when things are going pretty well, it seems like minor tweaks to improve it really aren't a bad idea. Mm -hmm. Um, but that was rejected and people instead wanted to just throw out everything Obama did, uh, without really examining the baby and the bathwater in some cases uh and my concern is that whatever the new normal is under trump that we're just going to have that same reaction again in four years eight years whatever that there there, there isn't going to be a sense of like let's evaluate what's working and improve it and then reform the things that aren't there's going to be just a you know a, an exciting backlash mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's probably what we're looking at because um, I, I don't want my president to be exciting. I don't want my government to be exciting. I want a boring government. Well, that you're in is... luck if you're doing local politics. Yeah. Well, fair enough. Fair enough. I, I, I want incremental improvements while getting rid of things that aren't working. Just reviews and check-ins and what is going well, what isn't, improve what's going well, and deprecate the stuff that isn't. Like I, I, don't, I don't know why we have to have these these violent booms and busts yeah yeah well i think that gets back to what you were observing about the pro problem of a system that we've got that we can only ever have two parties and, mm. and that's we're, we're kind of a bipolar country fair enough yeah uh that's not a super optimistic yeah. to, to end on uh so i don't know i there's something i think it's important to keep in mind that uh we have been through a lot of struggles uh lgbts and otherwise uh we have had a lot of dark times and a lot of people have died uh you know coming from uh homosexuality being criminalized uh, being a mental illness marriage being illegal people being you know uh, thrown out of the homes uh, that they shared with their partners when their partners died of aids uh the epidemic that the reagan administration thought was a colossal joke uh there've been a lot of real dark times for queer people. We've learned a lot about how to organize and how to stick together and how to support our intersecting struggles. And I say this to you. Trump says build a wall, and I say build a wall. Build a different wall. Build a wall of solidarity around 
the shared values that we can all agree are fundamental to what makes America great. Not again, but always. uh, Values of fairness and respecting all people. If you say all lives matter, all lives include black lives. All lives include Muslim lives. All lives include LGBT lives. All lives include immigrant lives. All lives include Mexican lives. If you really believe all lives matter, then you should be completely comfortable saying any one of those particular instances matter because they're part of all lives. Those are values that the country has shared historically and seems, and I think the shock and this horror is this apparent abrogation of what the country has believed in and the story we've been telling ourselves for most of our lifetimes. So as Captain Picard said, this far and no further, the line must be drawn here. We build a wall around these values that we share, that say that everyone has dignity and that we do not believe in discrimination. We do not believe in disenfranchising people because of fundamental characteristics of who they are. Uh, We don't punish people who have done nothing wrong. And we hold that wall. We hold that wall with people who have been oppressed. And we hold that wall with people who have been marginalized. And we hold that wall with people who are in power. The people who can agree to these common values, and they are out there. Maybe they voted for Trump, but they are out there. We remind them of what makes America great, and we fucking hold the wall. Sounds good to me. Yeah. There was no Boudoir Baby this week. There was Mark. There was Mark, the adult, the ABDL. God knows. God knows what Mark's deal is. I'm sure. A-A-B-B-B-L. Adult baby. Boudoir baby. Boudoir baby. Adult boudoir baby DL. Everyone, thank you for joining us for uh, a very long episode of Defining Marriage. Well, it's the first time there's actually been... A threat to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Uh, This this podcast, I mean, I, I, I know it's too long already, but this podcast started... After, with a victory. Yeah, it started with a victory. Um, so there really hasn't been a lot to, a lot of challenges directly that, that were a real threat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why we've mostly been talking about other countries. And um, and nonsense. And nonsense. Uh, now I got some real work to do. Uh, sure, I also have to go back to some video games. Okay, that sounds good. Um, that, and just a reminder that self-care is important, of course. And uh, just over the last few days, video games have been helping me deal with uh some very dark emotions uh so i'm grateful to james in particular no for giving me giving me opportunities to enjoy myself and if you want to treat yourself to a little self-care you can put in angela lansbury's positive moves uh she teaches you how to treat your body so so right and you can go to playingwithpride.com and see how lgbt gamers have come together to kiss and hug and play Mass Effect, more like Ass Effect. Ha! Uh, but they they like it. They like a joystick. So watch that. Playingwithpride.com. Thanks for joining us, everybody. You can leave comments on the podcast. I'm at Matt Baum on Twitter, and you can leave a review on the iTunes store. And you can also get my book, Defining Marriage, at definingmarriage.com. I think that's everything for this week, James. Thank you for joining me. It is always lovely to talk about this stuff with you, and it helps me understand my own feelings, which are many. 
Yeah. <laughs> by the power vested in me by the internet, I hereby pronounce this podcast over. <laughs>